Greetings and welcome, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Hard News on Friday night at BBS Radio. We're grateful that you're joining us here tonight, and we'd like to take a few moments to go into our heart space, set the tone for the evening. So let's take a few gentle breaths. Breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth. Slowly, gently. As we go into that heart space, we let go of the dross of the day. And I hear that calling drum as we gather around in that heart space. Let us gather with our guides and guardians, our spirit teams, our healing teams, our totems, our ancestors, whoever you like to join with that Kimi drum in that drum journey that we're going to take. So there's a council fire and it's in the center. Let us gather around that council fire, coming close in a circle around that fire in that virtual way that we know how to do. And now let us call in those seven galactic directions in the Mayan tradition.
come from the east to have the light. May wisdom open in the dawn that is upon us, so that we may see all things in clarity. Welcome from the north, the house of night. May wisdom mature among us, so that we may see everything from within. We greet from the west, the house of transformation. May wisdom be transformed into right action so that we might accomplish what must be done. We greet from the South, the house of the eternal sun. May right action give us the harvest, so that we might enjoy the fruit of the planetary beings. Welcome from above, the house of paradise, where the star people and the ancestors gather. May their blessings reach us now. And we greet from below, the house of earth. May the beating of the crystal planet's heart bless us with its harmony, so that we might end war. We welcome from the central source of the galaxy, which is everywhere at once. May everything be recognized as the light of mutual love. I am Humnaku Yizumaya Imaho. I am Humnaku Yizumaya Imaho. I am Humnaku Yizumaya Imaho. All hail the harmony, mind and nature. All my all my relations. In Bakash, you are me. So just stay wherever that drumbeat took you. As you take a few minutes and look at the Mayan record of days for today and the week ahead. Today's kin number 141, and we just finished yesterday those <clears throat> 20 core days. So um, we're, we're all refreshed and starting anew in the eighth union. Today is an Amish, the very first solar glyph. So it's the red spectral dragon, and that spectral tone is about letting go, dissolve, liberation, and release. And Imish, the dragon, that red dragon is nurtures and being and birth, the beginning. So we have that beginner's mind with this day as well. 
as we start this eighth union. And the mantra today, I dissolve in order to nurture releasing being. I seal the input of birth with the spectral tone of liberation. I am guided by the power of my own power devils, the devil dragon day. So, so our support today is the white spectral mirror and our hidden power, the occult power, is the yellow electric sun. Our challenge teacher is the blue spectral monkey. We are in the wave of the monkey. Uh, so, yeah, here we are with a double dragon day in the wave of the monkey. So lots of spontaneity and and <clears throat> that re- <clears throat> return to innocence that the wave of the monkey brings us in this wave cell. This joy and bliss and, and humor. Let's embrace all of that with this wave. We let go of that which isn't that. <laughs> <clears throat> so there you go. We're letting go of all that. Let's look at that dragon energy a little closer. It's, it's about creation. It's an artist aspect, and it's about creation and self-dependence and trusting in the universe. And it's that clarity of mind. If we get clear of what we're bringing into this new world, and this opportunity to start a new, a new paradigm, so let's embrace these gifts of being that source of creation, the gift of the beginning. We let go of any illusion of the lack of support. So we do this together in that 11 tone of letting go, dissolving, liberating. And then moving on to Saturday, it's the 12 eeks, the white crystal wind. And that wind eek is a visionary aspect. So we're working with co-creation of heaven on earth. (laughs) Truth in all matters. And remembering our unity with spirit. So we embrace these gifts of having that voice of spirit. And spirit working through us. So let's let go of any judgment of others or any secretiveness as we embrace these energies on Saturday and then moving along to Sunday. It's the 13 Aqual, the blue cosmic light, as we complete this wave of the monkey chewing. We do do that with this cosmic night. So that cosmic tone, the 13 tone, that promise of change and... <clears throat> the culmination of this wave at the same time. So it's an artist aspect, it's night energy, Akbal. We're working with our participation and and belief in our abundance. And we're working with learning from our dream time. So we have these gifts with Akbal, that protection of the night and being that mystery of life. So let's let go of any self-judgment or any withdrawal as we embrace these energies. It's that cosmic tone, it's cosmic light on Sunday, tone 13. So then Monday we start a new wave, and it's the wave of Khan, the yellow magnetic seed. And this is the energy of the opening seed, the flowering of our ideas into reality. So let's work with this wave and that good creative seed energy. And also in this wave, we have those 10 portal days that are coming up, um, starting on 
starting on Wednesday. So it's powerful ways, and uh, we look forward to that seed energy being with us that way. And then on Tuesday, the two Chichang, the red lunar snake, serpent. That Chichang energy is a healing aspect. And, oh, I mean, a warrior aspect. Excuse me, I was looking at Khan. I didn't read about Khan, so let's look at Khan for a minute. It's a healing aspect, and it's about our openness to life and self-determination, harmony-seeking, about timing. And so we embrace these gifts of possibility, that potential of creation, as we let go of any stagnation or any lack of self-confidence. <clears throat> so that's that Conway. We'll be working with that the whole 13 days, so... That's good. And then <clears throat> Cheek Charm then is Tuesday, and it's the lunar snake or the lunar serpent. So it's a warrior aspect, and it's about remaining open to change. And that seems to be the order of the day, change. So let's distinguish between the body and the soul as we transmute energy that needs to be transmuted and embrace these gifts of that motivation to change, and the gift of instinct and body sensing that that snake brings us so well. As we let go of any insecurity or any fears around intimacy or any issues about our bodies or any blockages by the ego, we embrace these energies on Tuesday and then Wednesday is a portal day and that'll be the first of the 10, so we're right into these portal days. And it, <clears throat> that portal day is a three Kimi, the white electric world bridger on Wednesday. It's the warrior aspect as well. So it's it's about forgiveness and moving into a state of grace. Kimi is that linker of worlds. So we are that world bridger and we are bridging between the past and the future and working with that transmutation. So let's let go of that which is no more. Let go of the ego or any controlling behavior or any belief that life is a struggle. We get into that flow and then it's a portal day, so it's extra-dimensional, and as is Monique on Wednesday, on Thursday, the four Monique, the blue self-existing hand. Monique is a healing aspect, the hand. So we're working with healing ourselves and others and creating contentment and peace. And we're working with the acceptance of the divinity of ourselves, so we embrace that connection with spirit as we have that gift of being the healer of humankind. Let us open new doors and that this hand helps us to do. We have our hands to open those doors, so let's do it. As we let go of any distraction or any belief in inadequacy or any procrastination, we embrace these energies on Thursday. And it's poor day, so lots of energy go around for folks. And then Friday when we come back, it's a five Lamont, the yellow overtone stargate, which is a visionary aspect. It's about the illumination of humankind, about opening that stargate. And we've got that stargate activation going on with that portal day. So let's embrace these gifts of that journeying and that pioneer spirit and having that power to see beyond the gate. As we let go of any dissonance or any self-doubt, we embrace these energies on Friday. We'll talk about it some more next Friday when we get back. And that's it for the week. So I'm going to change my hat as we are listening to Port Radio Program. It's all of us that make it happen. Each week we have 
uh, around three hundred dollars in this month. It's been three hundred and twenty-six fifty each week. So um, we got forty-five dollars and fifty-five cents last week. So we need two hundred and eighty dollars and ninety-five cents for last week, and this week we need three hundred and twenty-six fifty. That comes out to six hundred and four dollars and forty-five cents. So we need to be generous with our donations this week as we can and are able to make those donations. We appreciate how we do it is go into our heart space, see what is already to give, and then go to bbsradio.com. And there you see a schedule on the homepage as you um, are looking at that homepage. Just click on BBS Radio 1 for the schedule for Radio Station 1. And you'll see this program listed at the 8 o'clock hour in Central Time as um, the hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama. And on Thursdays at the same hour, the 8 o'clock hour on Station 1, we have a night at the round table with the panel. So either one of those listings, as you click on the icon, that'll take you directly to our account where you can make your donation in any amount using your bank card. So thank you for taking that action. Saturday shows on BBS Radio Station 2. It starts at the 3.30 hour central. And it is the true history, history, and affair, like Galactic Origins with Tara and Rama, every Saturday for 10 hours and <laughs> with a break in the middle for the conference call. So lots of, lots to happens on Saturdays. And we're grateful for all of you who can donate, and that's where you find our link there at the 3.30 hour. You just click on that icon there. That takes you to our account. So thank you for taking that action. We're so grateful for all of you as we come together each week and gather this way. This is a good way to give back and a good way to support the best radio in the land. <laughs> and so lots of gratitude for all of you and all the ways that you show up. So it's also the end of the month, and there's bills that are due at the end of the month. So we're assisting Tara and Rama with their bills. And next week they'll have $280 in bills that are due, and they also need $200 for their living expenses. Uh, <clears throat> so as you can assist with that, here's how you make a donation to the, uh, Tara and Rama or the Rainbow Roundtable. You go to the web address, rainbowroundtable.net, and there on the homepage, click on that menu grid, and you'll see all the things on that website that just dropped down, and there near the bottom of that list is a donate link. Click on that. That links you to the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account, and you can make a donation in any amount there. Um, there's also a friend option option there, and that's as you scroll down, you see that little heart. Click on that heart. That's it. And you need to enter the email uh, for Rainbow Roundtable there, and it is as follows. Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. So either way is perfect. We're grateful for your uh, gifts. If you do the friends option, that just makes the money go a little further. Either way is perfect. So much gratitude. And um, <clears throat> they also are having issues with the car, and they got gifted with someone who's taking care of that. Um, so 
Rama's going to get a new starter tomorrow for his car. It's not been been feeling well. Didn't want to run. <laughs> Didn't want to turn on. So that's being fixed. They have an appointment tomorrow to get that fixed. And we also have a GoFundMe site as they're looking for a new car and would like to get something. We can assist in that process by going to the, the GoFundMe site. You link to it from the uh, web address or from one of the updates. Both of those are lifting the, up, the link to the GoFundMe, which is the uh, for Tara and Rama to get a new car. Uh, or used car. So lots of gratitude for your participation with that. Um, and then we're also um, participating with the NFT Rewards Program, and I want to give you the link where you can join uh, under the Rainbow Roundtable or Tara and Rama site. So that address is nftrewards.biz. And NFT is <clears throat> N as in Nancy, F as in Fran, T as in Tom, rewards, R-E-W-A-R-D-S, plural, dot, biz, B as in boy, I, Z, or Z, as in zebra, and then a forward slash register, and another forward slash Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999, is the... Um, Username for Tara and Rama's site, and then that's where you can join and set up your own account. And this week, and I think it was was that Lady Masternada had said that this is the foundation of the new currency. This is going to work. This is a good program. It's solid. It's already been vetted by the SEC. It's complying to all laws. There was a law change that made it possible to do this level of network marketing. And we know that's how we gather in community to do things. So um, this is this is how we do it. And there's a tool that comes with the program that's being offered free of charge. It's a suite at iMetatool, and it's where that you're able to do your networking there with um, leads that you purchase at a reasonable fee. So it's it's a very good way. And it and as we can, let us communicate with each other and help each other sign up um, as we can uh, do that. So lots of gratitude for all of you. Very excited about this program. The King of Swords also piped in about about a month, maybe six weeks ago. He talked about it as we checked in about it, and he said that this is a recommended thing to do, that um, it was not going to be taken down. It's been our past experience. And these sort of things. And I think that had to do with that new law that got passed during Obama's administration, but maybe it was just recently. It's called a 5036 or B or something like that. But they talk about it in there with the, how that ruling really made it possible to do this kind of marketing. And, and it opens us up for being able to work together in community. And it is very much of a new paradigm operation. So we're grateful to be in on the ground floor at this point and grateful for all of you that participate. I think you will enjoy it and glad you did. <laughs> so um, that's it, everyone. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all your contributions and for assisting us with our radio program and assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. 
so much gratitude for you and your life. Thirteen, thank you, honey in the heart, long life, live long and prosper, <laughs> no evil. And I'm passing this talking stick, and it definitely has the the dragon of the day. It's an Amish dragon on there, and it's spectral for sure. Lots of fireworks going on, and lots of celebration for the tone of the day as we are going through this shift. We're doing it all together and all of our all of ourselves. So here it comes. This, this also has lots of fairies and feathers and all the little people and the unicorns are there too. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes this talking stick. Greetings. All you commanders, eagles and angels. The energies are continuing to go higher, everyone. And um, I watched something today. It was like an extra at the end of a show on Link TV. It was about this little boy, and he was in space. And he was having some journey traveling going on there. And uh, the visuals were really talking about a higher energy coming in. It was very well done. I won't be playing it here because you can't see what's on the screen. Uh, um, the selection of the music and the, the words was right in alignment with these higher energies coming in. I liked, I liked seeing that and hearing that. So I share that bit with you. But Rama, I would think I'm going to pass this talking stick to you and you can share what you had experienced with your Faction 3 White Knight of the day. It has been a intense day with the energies and... Hot. 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 <laughs> and there were two X-Glass solar flares and... Uh, I got a text message from Tom the Ringtail Cat, and he was just saying, you know, this is what the fifth dimension, it, it's not a bad thing, but the energies are extremely high. And as we integrate these ascension frequencies, we can ride with the waves, yet... It, it is life-changing and altering, and I, I've been feeling it quite a bit today. <laughs> and watching the dimensions merge and blend with each other, overlapping each other, and uh, just... Staying ahead of the fray, and it, it is it is a zoo. I have to displace the violet fire, keep the words clean, so to speak, because as we are to really take on the roles of what we're being taught here, how to become. Ascended Masters, Jedi Knights, 
however we see ourselves in this story with the Galactics, um, Aurora Ray is giving us the tools, and it's similar to the stuff that Yogi Bhajan was teaching so long ago about Kundalini Yoga, the breath, the key of life, pranayama. It is how we change physical reality, space-time, matter. As you work with your breath, things happen, and they are extremely awesome to be whole. I can say that. Um, I had a little incident today where the car died out, and I um, took some crystals out and got the car going again and uh, had to call up Geico and say, no, I don't need a jump. I got it going. <laughs> but it is. And so Rama's got an appointment tomorrow. Yeah, to get a starter. Yes. And we just want to thank um, one of our sisters for... Uh, covering it for us. So we're grateful for that. Um, I can just say that as we are experiencing these higher energies and we don't get lost in the mix, because it's very easy to do that, there is no veil as you interact with the beings all around you. I was sitting by the side of the road and uh, just, you know, in kind of a wooded area going uh, north, I saw the trees kind of move in a way in which I haven't seen the trees move. And it was about the dimensions opening and closing. And the trees know how to do this. It's quite amazing to behold. It's, you know, really true. Tree beard is real. The ants are real. All these stories about these magical folks, like Rainbird was passing us the talking stick with the dragons. They're all here. I might sound like nonsense, but this is absolutely the... This is what time it is as we are to heal this planet. I, I just got to say it in that way. Yeah, and this is world group service, the whole era. It's not going to end now. We're going to be working no. together to, you know, perfect our paths uh, individually as well as together and green this earth. And um, and uh, do housekeeping on the earth every day. Rainbird told us a story this before we got on the air. She had one of one of the older trees fell down, and she was working in the garden, and she heard it, and it was down below where she would have been working in the garden. So we were all guided. It was kind of unusual that she wasn't in that spot. Uh, so, and there's many things to do 
and Rainbird has in her vision to get some more of the uh, land around her beautiful space where she lives. And uh, so then things will be moving along the ideas of, uh, well, I mean, Rainbird's been gardening for her whole life, <laughs> one way or the other, and following the Native American path quite strongly. And now the ancient Mayan, which is is Native American, uh, in its origins as well. Okay. And the West, uh, uh, coming West, it took two and a half years on a sailboat to cross what at that time was called the Sea of Darkness, which is now called the Atlantic Ocean, many thousands of years ago. It took that much gumption for people to pull it together and decide to come in boats and come over to this side. And we're not talking about Christopher Columbus. Uh, but I am going to say that at a higher level, St. Germain and his journeys are what we're learning much more about now. Not the fairy tale. <laughs> uh, as As Freedom's Holy Flame continues to be available, let's continue to remain open-hearted and in that spirit of love. And Rama's got something he wants to play for us. Tell this us what is this Aurora is. Ray. It's about eight minutes. We might get it done. Oh, we will, definitely. Okay, this is called Embrace the Miracle. Discover the incredible wonders of your body. Because if you cannot love your own body, how can you love somebody else's? 
If there is no love for oneself, one cannot respect oneself, and one cannot respect anybody else either. How can one be dignified towards anybody else if one cannot honor oneself? If one has no dignity as far as oneself is concerned, how can one be compassionate towards anybody else? That's why I say that meditation brings a revolution to you. It gives you a new insight. You have taken everything from your body without giving anything in return. No respect, no love. On the contrary, it has been abused. You have been torturing it continuously. Otherwise, why are there so many diseases? Why are you so ungrateful to your body? In fact, you should be grateful because it is such a miracle. It is not just an ordinary house. It is really a miracle. It is made up of five elements. The science of yoga says that the whole universe is made up of only five elements. Earth, water, air, fire, and ether. Everything in the world is made of these five elements. Trees, plants, animals, and human beings are all made up of these five elements. Trees and mountains are made up of the solid element called earth. The oceans are made up of a liquid element called water. The atmosphere around us is made up of a gaseous element called air. Our bodies feel warm because they contain the fire inside them. And then there is another element, which we can call space or ether. All our bones are actually made of space, not just empty space, but a kind of solid space. There are also two more elements in the human body, mind and intelligence, but these two elements cannot be seen through a microscope or any other scientific instrument. You've never thanked your body for all it's done for you since you were born. And now, after so many years, it has become old and tired, but it still serves you. Your breathing can be a great thank you note. Whenever you feel thankful and grateful to your body, just sit silently for two minutes and breathe deeply. Breathing deep gratitude makes the whole body alive with joy. You you will feel an inner dance arising within you, a dance of love with your heart to clean every cell in your body. This can be done while sitting or while walking. It doesn't matter what posture you are in. Just remember to breathe deeply and feel grateful to the universe that such a beautiful gift has been given to you, this wonderful temple that has been built by nature itself. And this beautiful temple should not become a cemetery. The moment you thank it, a great sense of gratitude arises in your heart. Your body becomes more beautiful. A grace surrounds it. Your whole being becomes grateful. That's what meditation does. It makes you more concerned about yourself. It brings a kind of love for oneself from which the love for others arises naturally. This is your body. Clean it. Use it well. Rest it when needed. Be grateful for what it can do for you. Feed and nurture it with great food, fresh water, and healthy air. You are not the body, but you are within the body. So take good care of it, because without it, you can't do anything. Love your body, accept your body, and understand that if you drop a pebble into the ocean of consciousness, then diseases will be created in your body. 
That's why I insist everyone start with a cleansing process using various yogic techniques to cleanse the body of all impurities. This may be done through pranayama or breathing exercises, kriyas or cleansing techniques, asanas or yogic postures, and meditation. Breath has its own intelligence that, if used properly, can help us to make our body disease-free. That's why I always teach people how to breathe properly and how to use their breath as an instrument to cleanse the whole system. When you love the temple of your body, it becomes healthier and more beautiful. It is a very simple phenomenon. The more you appreciate it, the more it becomes valuable. And once it becomes valuable, you start taking care of it. If you don't value anything, you will not take care of it. You will throw it away. You will not bother about it. If you love your body, that is the very first step to meditation. Otherwise, meditation will be impossible because if you don't love your body and you don't have any respect for your body and its functions, then how can you have any respect for your mind? Your mind is a function of the body, just like breathing, digestion, circulation, or blood. You don't see your mind, but that does not mean that it is not there. In fact, the mind is much more subtle and close than the heartbeat. As a result, all religions teach that there should be no killing, stealing, or lying. And why all these three? Because when we kill somebody, we are destroying something that could have been loved by somebody. We are also destroying our own capacity to love. If you love your body, you have made the greatest investment you can ever make in your life. It will pay you infinite dividends. I would be surprised if, after one year of loving your body, you don't become tremendously healthy, tremendously blissful, and tremendously beautiful. People will stare at you because they cannot believe that someone in this world can be so blissful, so radiant, and so healthy. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. Aho! This is a message to humanity from Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. Thank you, Ron. Yes. Well, um, I think it's time to give out the phone numbers for our conference call. Um, 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, try that one more time. 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, everyone. And we'll see you there at this conference call. It lasts an hour, so we'll be right back here at BBS Radio, the best radio there is, on air and sea and all over the place. And uh, uh, we'll be back at the top of the very next hour. And so, so it is. See you on the conference, everyone. Namaste for now.
Thank you for joining us for our weekly vlog. Tomorrow is the June 21st solstice, which is providing us with another opportunity to comprehend a deeper level of what is occurring for Mother Earth and all life evolving upon her in this new solar reality. As the beings of light revealed, this planet has ascended into the initial impulses of her solar reality, and there is no turning back. You and I and the rest of awakening humanity have been instrumental in co-creating this glorious event in unison with our Father Mother God 
and the legions of light throughout infinity. It has not been easy, but we knew exactly what would be involved and we volunteer to embody on earth during this auspicious time anyway. For lifetimes, we have felt like we were walking through tar into 150 mile an hour winds as we stumbled through our valley of tears, striving to make even the slightest progress in our movement toward the light. In spite of our pain, we were willing to endure every hardship and difficult experience because we believed that one day the lessons of separation and duality would come to an end and we would return to the oneness of unity consciousness. We knew that once that happened, we would be able to reclaim our divine birthright as beloved sons and daughters of God and return to the path of divine love and oneness that is our destiny. We each accepted this challenging evolutionary path because eons ago, our I am presence showed us the divine potential we had of actually co-creating a heart-based new earth that would reflect oneness and reverence for all life. We were shown through the unified efforts of heaven and embodied light workers that we would learn how to successfully transfigure the gross mutations of humanity's miscreations back into light. Our Father, Mother God revealed to us at that time that if we could victoriously accomplish that facet of the divine plan, the earth and all life evolving upon her would make it through the initial step of the shift of the ages. Then, hopefully, we would be able to co-create the sacred space for Mother Earth's ascension into the fifth dimensional crystalline solar frequencies of the new Earth. Even though there was the possibility that we might not succeed, in the deepest recesses of our heart flames, we clearly understood that no matter how difficult our journey would be, if we could successfully accomplish that mighty feat, whatever we had to go through in this process would be infinitely worth it. The success of that facet of the divine plan would mean that every man, woman, and child on earth would be able to victoriously ascend out of the self-inflicted pain and suffering we caused through our human miscreations after our fall from grace. It would mean that we could transfigure the aging, disease, degeneration, and mental and emotional challenges existing in our third dimensional carbon-based bodies into vibrant health 
and eternal youth of our fifth dimensional crystalline solar light bodies. After lifetimes of pain and suffering and decades of dedicated light work by embodied humanity and the company of heaven, on December 21st, 2012, our solar system aligned with the galactic core of the Milky Way and our Father Mother God inbreathed the whole of creation up the spiral of evolution, successfully completing the first step of the shift of the ages. Since that time, through myriad activities of light that were orchestrated by awakening humanity in the company of heaven, we have at last succeeded in co-creating the sacred space that allowed the mighty Elohim to successfully inbreathe Mother Earth and all her life through the next step of the shift of the ages. This step resulted in Mother Earth taking her rightful place in the initial frequencies of her new fifth dimensional crystalline solar reality. Now the divine plan as embodied light workers is for us to complete the process of transmuting into light the last vestiges of humanity's miscreations and co-creating the patterns of perfection for Mother Earth's new solar reality tangibly in our everyday life experiences. For the June solstice, our Father, Mother God have given us an activity of light that will help us to prepare as we move forward with this facet of our divine plan. If you have the heart call to do so, please join with me and lightworkers around the world now. And we begin by breathing our new holy breath. I am my I am presence and I am one with my Father, Mother, God. My fifth dimensional crystalline solar light bodies are pulsating within the scintillating flame of the immaculate concept that is blazing in the crystalline lotus blossom in the newly ascended heart of Mother Earth. I am my I am presence, and my I am presence is one with the I am presence of every man, woman, and child on earth. Collectively, humanity's I am presences now merge into one I am presence, which is cradling Mother Earth and all life evolving upon her within the divinity of our unified heart flames. My individual I am presence now expands and expands into a luminous being of light that is holding Mother Earth 
and the collective I am presence of all humanity within its immortal, victorious, threefold heart flame. Now, the heart flame of my fifth dimensional crystalline solar light bodies pulsating in the heart of Mother Earth and the unified heart flame of all humanity in our collective I am presence and the greatly expanded heart flame in my luminous I am presence have all three merged into one glorious, immortal, victorious, threefold flame. This trinity of God's infinite light is now enveloping Mother Earth and sustaining her in the frequencies of solar light she is now abiding in. With every holy breath, this awesome light is blessing humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth. My Father, Mother God, and the entire company of heaven are helping awakening humanity now to use this gift of light to accelerate the divine alchemy that is transfiguring Mother Earth and all life evolving upon her into the immaculate concept of the fifth dimensional crystalline solar new earth. Simultaneously, the beings of light are helping humanity to recalibrate the spiritual brain centers, as well as the mental bodies, the superconscious minds, the conscious minds, the subconscious minds, and the physical brain structures of every person on earth into a brand new level of divine consciousness. This elevated shift of consciousness is creating the space for the I am presence of every son and daughter of God to empower the divine intelligence that is now being encoded within every person's holy breath by our Father Mother God. This is allowing the Elohim of purity, Claire and Estrella, and every person's individual and collective I am presence to greatly expand the crystalline white flame of purity that is pulsating within the core of purity in every electron of humanity's earthly bodies. Breath by breath, the flame of purity is now expanding within the 50 trillion cells in our earthly bodies and the 100 trillion atoms within each cell. Every person's I am presence, our silent watcher, and our body elemental are now able to cast the remaining residue 
cloaking the electrons in our carbon-based bodies into the violet flame. Instantaneously, these shadows are being transmuted back into their original perfection. This is clearing the way for each of our cells to be resurrected, restored, and renewed so that they can safely assimilate the full divine potential of our fifth dimensional crystalline solar light bodies. With the gift of this living, breathing activity of light, which all life on earth has been blessed with this day, all of humanity is now developing the ability to clearly comprehend the sacred knowledge from the realms of illumined truth and the patterns of perfection for the new contingency plan that are flowing into the mental and emotional strata of Mother Earth from the new record keeper crystals that have been placed in Earth crystal grid system by the mighty Elohim. In deep humility and gratitude, I now consecrate my life force and my balanced and elevated holy breath to be the open door for this unfathomable divine intervention on behalf of every particle and wave of life evolving on this sweet earth. And so it is, beloved I am. Beloved I am. Beloved, I am that I am. God bless you, dear one. I look forward to being with you next week.
that you are walking out of this golden shaft of light. It is a midsummer's day and you've arrived in beautiful gardens. And in these beautiful cultured gardens, there is a magnificent crystal temple of light. You find yourself walking through the pathways and notice that there are other humans here in their light bodies. You notice the golden glow around your own. You notice beautiful masters of light and angels walking with others through the beautiful gardens. And your angel leads you towards the great crystal temple. This is the temple of a great being who has served humankind. And that being, Melchizedek. This temple holds the ancient order of the sisters and brothers of Melchizedek. And your angel leads you towards the steps, the golden steps of this great temple. Allow your imagination, allow your imagination to come alive. And as you walk up these steps, the temple of Melchizedek, the great doors swing open you find you're walking down the central aisle of this temple with your angel towards a great altar that is set up on a pedestal. And there upon this altar is a table that holds your book of life crystal vase. And on the other side of this table is a great being known as Melchizedek. In the back of the altar are many ascended masters sitting seated in thrones. Arriving before the table that holds your book of life on it. Magnificent angels come and form a circle behind and you step forward before the table and find yourself placing your hand upon your book of life. You take this crystal goblet beautiful life force liquid within it and imagine that you drink it down. And this magnificent being known as Melchizedek now stands before you on the other side of this table. And this one asks you for your name. And you respond, I am. Melchizedek 
asks of you as to whence is your home. Again, you respond, I am. Melchizedek again asks of you to name the source of your life. And again you respond, I am. The great being states to you that you have named correctly. And now this one waits to hear of your willingness to serve the light, to accept your flight to freedom. At this time, I ask that you would, in this great altar of light, affirm into your heart the following truth. Looking deeply into the master's eyes, you affirm, I am come from the light. I love the light. I serve the light. I am supplied and illumined by the light and forever protected. I request, in the name I am that I am, and in the name of Archangel Michael, that my journey into the earth with a history of belief systems and my contracts to evolve through pain and suffering now be severed completely. I am willing to evolve through plateaus of consciousness.
and I accept grace. And I now make a new contract to evolve through love, through light, through grace, through my own great God self. I accept my responsibility to call forth the greatness of my being, of my great God self, through me and into my world. I accept this responsibility of revealing and releasing the perfection of my God self through me and into my world. I am here to serve the light. I am that light that cometh into this world. From this day forth, when I state I am, I am not speaking of my lower human self. When I am affirming higher truth, when I state I am, I am always referring to my great God self, the source of all that is good. Relax. In the next moment, the goddess of liberty appears before you and you continue to make an oath deep into your being. I am the flag of freedom. I am the flag of liberty and justice. Revealing itself through me and into my world. In the name, love, and authority of the I am that I am, I call forth to my own great God self with the assistance of the goddesses of light. to remove and consume from me everything that is not light and not love. I am willing to let go of all that is not light, all that is not love. I am willing to forgive 
not because I find my sisters and brothers or myself guilty, but rather I forgive because in truth, I recognize the innocence within myself and each other. It is my desire to release the perfection and the freedom of my great God self through me and into my world. one presence, one power, and one intelligence that is the I that is within me. I, in the midst of me, has come that I may have life and have it more abundantly. shall look to no man or no woman, but rather look continuously to the I in the midst of me as the source of my own infinite supply, health, and dominion of every good thing in my life. Remembering that there is but one I, and my I can express through me, or it can express to me. But I shall never forget again, there is but one I that is the source of all good. And that source within me and every other person. And I am grateful. And am now committed to taking my flight to freedom expressing that freedom each and every day. Relax. And imagine that in the next moment a shaft of gold and yellow light descends from the ceiling of this temple. And your angel calls you around to stand in the shaft of golden light from the heavens. 
and you stand before Melchizedek. And this great being takes your hands in his hands. And gently the two of you begin to ascend up this magnificent shaft of golden light. And there you are, ascending up into the heavens, into a magnificent golden sun, a golden star, the birthplace of your soul, the great central sun. With Melchizedek at your side, you find yourself walking into a beautiful, beautiful sun of eternal light. Melchizedek leaves you to walk deeper into the light, an endless sea of light in every direction. And just ahead of you, there is a portal of a rosy pink light. You find yourself walking through this portal of pink energy. And as you come out of it, still in that eternal place of infinite light. You see the heavenly mother and father walking towards you. They have taken form to greet you. And as the heavenly mother and father come upon you with arms stretched in their eternal unconditional love for you, Embrace you in the diamond heart of their love and look upon you as they originally did before you left the source of your creation. They see you in your shining innocence. And here I leave you just you and the Heavenly Mother and Father. And this is that time to have that private conversation, just you and them. Their love for you is infinite and always has been. Just take a few minutes and just be in that energy.
That was beautiful music. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. We are all servants of peace. Mother, <laughs> greetings of the most radiant one in the office of the Christ and only in the office of the Christ. We invoke the lovely energy of St. Germain and And we ask at this time for awareness at a higher level of consciousness of what is going on Uh, with these energies increasing ever so much higher every single moment of every single day. And our, his story is becoming her story, the story of love, of the ability to receive love in order to be able to share it with everyone, to end all violence wherever we find it, in a unconditional divine pursuit of happiness in all that we do and be. Greetings, Mother. Greetings. We can't hear you. Greetings. Oh, LCO. (laughs) Yes? Yes, we are. What's going on? (laughs) It is the time that has been talked about the last 12,000 years. Mibu's returning along with all the folks. Climate disruption, consciousness conflict. It's all going on right now. This moment 
I've been cussed and disgust. So long. And we can say without giving dates this moment that's been long prophesized is coming to pass right now. It is the fact many different federations of worlds are here to see it through that we all ascend with the temple like Aurora Ray said gotta take it with you through the keyhole, which is as large as a black hole. Hmm. This journey, we asked to be part of. has come full circle. This is why we speak of Nibiru's return. Gotta collect our children since they can't collect themselves. a glorious time to be alive. And at the same time, quite a challenge to receive what's coming in. Is it hot enough in the kitchen? <laughs> I think so, brother. Some people still want it hotter. They just have no idea what they're asking for. Um, <laughs> not sure how to respond except to say the sun knows how to turn it up. And it's happening. These living miracles we call bodies got all the answers as we were to travel inside our own bodies 
terror looking inside Mother Gaia's oceans for stuff. Hmm. All the stuff is right here. And we kind of got lost in the garden. Along with many other folks. Now it's a completion of this cycle where humanity is waking up like never before. We commend you for being here mm. in these realms that are not easy to traverse. It is a big deal to be here in these bodies and hats off to you. We know this story is completing itself. We wish we could give a day, yet we cannot. If as we were to guess what we could say, is look to the heavens as you watch the increase in energies. What's unfolding is we are raising it up along with the sun. That's a good thing. Love is the answer to all the questions that are going on right now. So many facets to the crystals of different stories about life, the universe, everything. Completion is transpiring as we're having this little fireside chat. 
is being revealed of how to change our lives for the better. It's a wonderful time to be alive. Hmm. Here we are. It's Here we are. Nearly the end of the first half of the year. The end of this month, Mother. Yes. We can say with great certainty all will come and be revealed to the people of Earth. I know the higher beings know a way to break up this party in a sense, you might say, Mother. Yes are doing a good job of breaking up their own. They're doing it all by themselves, they sure are. Yes. It's... It's a bit rude, to say the least. Yes. Oh. It is... A story about how deep it's got to get for humanity to save itself. We are the ones, and it may sound ridiculous, yet it is coming to pass. All it takes is believing in the magic. Mm -hmm. Things are unfolding, like Aurora Ray said, that hmm, it's not always visible, yet it is still happening, or 
conscious mind not able to catch up with the quantum field. And that's being rectified by the higher energies coming in as we change our thoughts. We move closer to the speed of light. It's quite a most unique experience. As things are unfolding, talk to your crystals. <laughs> Talk to the cells in your body. The crystals do. Everything is connected. It's this most unique experience to fully become alive and aware of what these temples can do. And we are saying all the stories, all the legends have gone on. It's all true. All we gotta do is take a quantum leap. <laughs> That's all. That's all. We know that when you jump off the cliff, we're going to fly. Is that the deal? Yes. <laughs> That's the work of the fool. And We're all fools now, Mother. Sometimes the biggest challenge is get to the edge and to just trust. And even though we're looking down, and it's a long ways down. We've done this one before. This is the final, final moment, so to speak, which is always the most uh, challenging, shall we say. <laughs> yes. Um, we didn't set it up that way. The energies in of themselves did. We asked to do this. Somewhere along the line, we did, didn't we? Um, Many incarnations ago, we said we would commit to completing the mission, didn't we? And we said we would not interfere. Uh-huh. Unless... That moment came. Which, which, which moment is that, Mother? The moment that is taking 
place right now. Yeah. The dark yeah. side's trying to steal away with the goods. Yes. The idea you're going to detonate something with the power of the sun. How about detonating what's inside here? <laughs> well, that's an interesting word to use right now, Mother. All it is is about an expansion of love in the cells. Plasma energy. Later this month, maybe in July, not sure, coming out with a new movie about Oppenheimer, what he had to go through to create the idea of fat man, little boy. Hmm. Don't have to do that one again, ever. This is why we're here, along with Archangel Michael's legions, and quite a few other folks. This is this moment. We can say no nukes. The stories that are unfolding right now are about this empire which has come to its twilight and send it more love on its way. Wherever you might be. We got miles to go this evening. Light years, in fact. Got a meeting on the outer rim of the galaxy. You do. Yes. With a few folks that have some ideas about the completion of this. It is top time, Mother. It is indeed. Greetings. Thank you, Mother. Greetings. In the light of the most radiant one.
Cross, cross, cross. Arnaiz, say we are living in boring times. Nobody can say that. Not even. Yes, Tigger. <laughs> Hi, Rama. Oh, where have you been? Um, where have I been? Indeed. Mm, I have been, uh, as it would seem, Shambhala the Greater. Listening to Lord Sarakumara uh -huh. giving a talk about the gravitational field of our planet and how it's changing radically because of the sun. And it's not an extinction level event. <laughs> it is about an ascension level event, which is the greatest story uh, we could be living right now. And we are living it. It's taking place in spite of our best efforts to try to muddy up the works. <laughs> it's quite a drama. There's a book that just came across the screen from Ancient Aliens, whatever's on there. It's called Passport to Magonia, From Folklore to Flying Saucers. Yes, I've heard of this. By Jacques Vallée, V-J-A-C-Q-U-E-S, Vallée, capital V-A-L-L-E-E. -E. That caught my eye. You've heard of it before. Yeah, very knowledgeable being. Yeah, this piece we're recording is four hours long. Oh my. Yeah. Goes till two o'clock in the morning here. Oh. Ancient aliens declassified. We're thinking to be in a 
It's, this is the History Channel, 120, on DISH. Three hours, 55 minutes. In the 20th century, pioneering scientists, journalists, and investigators defied convention and began documenting UFOs with incredible new UFO accounts coming to light. Their work may culminate in undeniable proof of extraterrestrial visitation. <coughs> That's yeah, okay. what it says. What, Ron? Oh, I was just going to say it, it is... Um it is high time we invite our family in for tea instead of pointing <laughs> right. strange objects at them that I'll keep it clean. <laughs> pointing strange objects at our galactic friends. Yeah, I mean... Like what? Oh, like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and these other... Going up in those... Sex toys <laughs> into space. <laughs> it's not funny. It's, it's not. They're spending all kinds of money of their own on that. Yeah. They haven't got a clue. Where is that flash? Blades of violent fire. <laughs> okay, well, let me get on with the show, huh? Ron? Yes. So, anything that you experienced that you want Just to say? This over this um, feeling from Sonic Kumara that everything is all right and not to go into panic mode even though they are screaming wolf to the high heavens right now wolf wolf yeah be very afraid of Mr. Putin and oh for heaven's sakes not the case be very afraid of Mr. Joe Biden <laughs> that dead person yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, the Donald's a dead person too. Everybody, all those are images of. That's a whole other story. Well, the yeah. the people have to wake up, Ron. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, this will have plenty to share here. Let's do our sister, uh, Amy, coming up here. Here we go. From New York, this is Democracy Now! It is with much sadness and sorrow that I think of the victims of the very serious shipwreck off the coast of Greece in recent days, and it seems that the sea was calm. I renew my prayer for those who lost their lives, and I implore that everything possible be done to prevent such tragedies. A titanic disparity. 
how the world responds to maritime disasters. As many as 700 migrants are feared dead in a shipwreck last week oh. off the coast of Greece. But the stories receive far less attention than the search for five passengers aboard a submersible on a trip to view the wreck of the Titanic. Ooh. Investigators now say the five died in a catastrophic implosion. Then we go to the occupied West Bank as tensions soar with Jewish settlers attacking Palestinian villagers and Israel launching drone and helicopter gunship attacks. Then the Palestine Laboratory, how Israel exports the technology of occupation around the world. The tools and technologies that Israel is using, whether it's spyware or smart walls or intelligence gathering or facial recognition or drones, are increasingly exported around the world and found in over 130 countries across the globe. So it shows that the occupation of Palestine is exported. It's a massive export business. We'll speak with independent journalist and author Anthony Lowenstein. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden welcomed Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi to the White House Thursday, praising a new era in U.S.-Indian relations. On Modi's second day of a lavish visit to the U.S. that's been condemned by human rights advocates, the two leaders announced a series of new initiatives, including a landmark deal for General Electric to build military jet engines in India. Modi delivered a speech to a joint session of Congress, was later feted at a state dinner with the president and the first lady, Jill Biden. In a rare occurrence, Modi accepted questions from journalists during a news conference with President Biden. Wall Street Journal reporter Sabrina Siddiqui, who is Muslim, pressed Modi on human rights concerns and asked him what steps he's taking to improve the rights of Muslims and other minorities in India and press freedom there. It's believed to be the first question Modi took from a journalist at a news conference since 2015. We have always proved that democracy can deliver. And when I say deliver, this is regardless of caste, creed, religion, or gender. There's absolutely no space for discrimination. In Sudan, residents began fleeing the southwestern city of Kadudli Thursday as a new front opened between Sudan's army and the rebel group known as the Sudan People's Liberation Movement North. Sudan's army says fighters with the group broke a long-standing ceasefire agreement this week and attacked Sudanese military units. In the capital Khartoum, heavy fighting continues between Sudan's army and the rival paramilitary rapid support forces. Elsewhere, activists say they've identified 500 bodies across the city of El Jenena the capital of Sudan's western Darfur region. Witnesses say thousands more bodies remain uncollected in the city's streets after paramilitaries and allied Arab militias stepped up attacks on non-Arab residents of the region. Aid workers say tens of thousands of people fleeing the violence for neighboring Chad have also faced violence and sexual assault. Loda Locastro, the UN Refugee Agency's representative in Chad, spoke to refugees who survived the journey. They described terrifying scenes in which everyone had to flee for their lives. There were massacres, and as they fled, they sometimes unfortunately had to leave behind little children who couldn't run. People were injured, and the elderly. 
Authorities in Greece have rescued 145 migrants who are found stranded on an island in the Everest River on the Greek-Turkish border. Thursday's rescue came as shocking details continued to emerge about how Greek Coast Guard officials failed to save hundreds of migrants who drowned last week after their overcrowded fishing vessels sank off the Greek coast. El Pais reports Greek authorities were tracking the ship for more than 12 hours, never activated a rescue operation even after the ship's engine broke down. In the Atlantic Ocean, rescue crews have called off a multinational, multi-million dollar operation to locate five people aboard the missing Titan submersible after debris from the vehicle was discovered Thursday near the wreckage of the Titanic. Engineers say the sub's operator, Ocean Gate, failed to properly account for design failures in the submersible, which was never certified to withstand the crushing pressures of the deep ocean. It's believed the sub's pilot, OceanGate CEO Stockton Rush, died instantly along with four passengers who paid $250,000 each for the adventure. This is Rush speaking in a 2022 documentary by a Mexican filmmaker. I'd like to be remembered as an innovator. Um, I think it was General MacArthur said, you're remembered for the rules you break. And, you know, I've broken some rules to make this. I think I've broken with, with logic and good engineering behind me, the carbon fiber and titanium. There's a rule you don't do that. Well, I did. The Wall Street Journal reports a top-secret U.S. Navy acoustic detection system designed to spot enemy submarines heard what the U.S. Navy suspected was the Titan submersible implosion just hours after it began its voyage. In climate news, Beijing is suffering its warmest June heat wave on record with high temperatures in the Chinese capital Thursday climbing above 41 degrees Celsius or 106 degrees Fahrenheit, its hottest June day since records began. In Mexico, a searing heat wave has driven record demand for electricity with reports of blackouts in a dozen states this week. The extreme heat extends into the United States where parts of Texas and other southern states face excessive heat warnings into next week. This comes as smoke from massive wildfires continues to trigger air pollution warnings in Canada and parts of the U.S. with unhealthy air quality forecasts for Chicago and much of Wisconsin today. The Union of Concerned Scientists reports half the U.S. population has faced an extreme weather alert so far this year. Meanwhile, a new study published in the journal Nature Sustainability finds Earth's ecosystems are degrading from global heating even more rapidly than previously thought, with one in five ecosystems, including the Amazon rainforest, at risk of passing a crucial tipping point by the end of the century. In Mexico, human rights advocates are demanding justice for two environmentalists assassinated in separate attacks in the state of Mexico earlier this month. Alvaro Arvizu and Cuauhtémoc Marquez were forest and water defenders who fought against extractivism in the region. Marquez, who was also a beekeeper, was shot dead near his home on June 12th. The day later, Arvizu died after being brutally assaulted by a group of unknown assailants with what appeared to be an axe. Mexico continues to be one of the deadliest countries for environmentalists in the world. The government of France has ordered the shutdown of the direct action environmental group Earth Uprising, wielding powers it previously used to outlaw far-right movements. The order came after the French interior minister accused Earth Uprising of carrying out eco-terrorism at several recent high-profile protests. The group responded in a statement, quote, Trying to silence Earth Uprising is a vain attempt to break the thermometer instead of worrying about the temperature, unquote. The crackdown drew criticism from Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg, who spoke Thursday from Paris.
all over the world we're experiencing this, not the least, for example, here in France, just the other day, and that activists are being systemically target, targeted with repression uh, and are paying the price for defending life and for the right to protest. Tatumbury was speaking at this week's summit for a new global financial pact in Paris, where climate activists are demanding world leaders mobilize trillions of dollars to finance a transition to clean energy and a loss and damage fund to help the global south deal with the worst effects of the climate catastrophe they did not cause. This is Inez Agrais, a youth climate activist from Rwanda. We have recently seen the flooding in Italy, the white fire in Canada. But the developing world is hit the hardest because they have the least resources to cope. For countries like mine, business, business as usual is a death sentence. Back in the United States, the Supreme Court has ruled against the Navajo Nation over claims the federal government has failed in its duty to address the tribe's water rights. Writing for the majority in Thursday's 5-4 to four ruling, Justice Brett Kavanaugh ruled the 1868 treaty that established the Navajo Reservation said nothing about an affirmative duty for the United States to secure water. The court's three liberal justices, joined by Neil Gorsuch in dissent, writing that the government has a duty to properly manage the water it holds for the tribe. Thousands of Navajo Nation members lack access to running water in their homes, even though the Colorado River runs along the northwestern border of their reservation. And in New York, immigration advocates have vowed to keep fighting after New York Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty refused to hold a vote on legislation that would have allowed undocumented people to enroll in New York's essential plan, government-subsidized health insurance under the Federal Affordable Care Act. The coverage for all bill had passed the state Senate earlier this month. Both chambers are controlled by Democrats. Nearly half a million New Yorkers are currently excluded from Medicaid and the essential plan health care coverage due to their immigration status. To see our interview with New York Assembly Member Jessica Gonzalez-Rojas, who sponsored the bill, go to democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show looking at the titanic disparity and how the world responds to maritime disasters. As many as 700 migrants are feared to have died in a shipwreck last week off the coast of Greece, but the stories received far less attention than the search for the five passengers aboard a submersible to view the wreck of the Titanic. On Thursday, search efforts for the submersible ended after investigators found debris near the Titanic at the bottom of the sea. It's believed the five passengers died in a catastrophic implosion. The two vessels were lost at sea four days and 4,000 miles apart. The five men who lost their lives on the Titan have been getting wall-to-wall coverage in the media worldwide. Meanwhile, the estimated 700 who died when the Adriana sank off the coast of Greece, mostly women and children, have been essentially forgotten. Passengers on the Titan were wealthy. Two were billionaires. Each paid $250,000 for an adventure of a lifetime, a deep-sea dive to view the wreckage of the Titanic. Those crammed onto the ramshackle Adriana fishing boat were seeking not adventure, but refuge from war, 
poverty, climate change, or any of the many other life-threatening crises that force people to flee their homes with little more than the clothes on their back. They paid human traffickers some thousands of dollars to ferry them from Libya to Europe. Many of the passengers were from Pakistan, Afghanistan, Egypt, Syria, and Palestine. A multinational effort was launched to search for the passengers on the Titan submersible. Meanwhile, the Greek government's facing accusations that it could have saved the migrants aboard the doomed ship, but opted not to. The newspaper El Pais reports Greek authorities were tracking the ship for more than 12 hours and never activated a rescue operation even after the ship's engine broke down. Begin today's show with two guests. Yorgos Kosmopoulos is a senior migration campaigner for Amnesty International. He's joining us from Brussels. And in Paris, we're joined, in Paris, we're joined by Laurence Bondat. Spokesperson and Operations Communications Manager for SOS Mediterranée. She's been on seven rescue missions in the Mediterranean. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Um, let's begin um, with uh, Laurence, uh, Spokesperson for Mediterranean. If you can respond to what took place last week and continues to take place, um, and clearly, uh, when we don't know the migrants' names, when we don't know their stories, like we know those on the Titan, the Titans, um, it is hard to care. Talk about who died last week. Hi, Amy. Yes, it is very difficult uh, to relate and to understand what happens in the Mediterranean when it's uh, far and when you don't I can understand what it means to be in the middle of the sea, uh, in the completely alone, uh, facing with the strength of the elements and, and having no one to hear your cry of despair and, and, and to come and rescue. The people that um, uh, flee via the sea and that take the risk to die, to seek safety, are people from very different uh, uh, regions of the world, uh, from uh, uh, the African continent, Asian continent, Middle East region. The, these are people, as you were describing, who are uh, fleeing their original countries for various uh, uh, reasons, from war to poverty, um, uh, different kinds of violence, and they end up in Libya, trapped in a country where they are um, facing harrowing cycle of violence. Um, we hear recounts of uh, people who are uh, abducted, uh, detained in official detention centers, beaten up with their family on the phone uh, to make sure that the family sells everything they have and, and provides as much money as possible. Um, so the people who take these unseaworthy boats that are critically overcrowded, without life jackets, often without food, enough food and water to do such hazardous and dangerous crossing, are people that are in the absolute despair. They will take any opportunity they have to just flee and try and seek safety. 
Yorgos Cosmopolis, you have said that this is a completely avoidable disaster. El País continues to expose what took place off the coast of Greece. Explain where the migrants were coming from on this overcrowded fishing vessel, what the Greek Navy knew, uh, when they knew it, and why this sunk. Uh, we don't know how many hundreds of people, in fact, have died, but it could be up to 700. Hi, Jaime. Thank you for, for having me. So, indeed, it's, it's, it's a tragedy beyond, beyond words, and it was completely preventable simply because Europe doesn't allow, doesn't afford safe and legal routes, pathways for these people to, to seek uh, uh, safety. And that's the beginning that's the, the result of policies of uh, European member states who do not prioritize uh, uh, lives. Uh, hearing the account of, of uh, our other guest, I always remember my friend Ali when he fled, fled uh, Syria. He, he, he called me yesterday after the Cypriot. He told me a few years ago it could have been me, me and my children. He always told me how it was the hardest thing he ever had to do, fleeing his own country among bombs, bombs carrying his, two, his three children in his arms, Telling them night and day it's gonna be okay, and thinking inside him it's gonna be okay even if I have to die. It's just to say that these people have absolutely no option. Nobody puts their family and themselves in such danger unless they have no other option. And European politicians who very often now exp express condolences, regret, do very little to do the right thing, to, 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 to have the safe and legal routes. We also know that the Greek coasters was alerted in this. Uh, later Cypriot, they were alerted early on and they followed very closely uh, the Cypriot. There are a lot of questions who remain to be answered by the Greek authorities. Why they acted the way they did, or why did they, they act in the way they should have uh, acted, especially as more information emerges, uh, uh, it was clear that the, 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 the vessel was uh, probably not seaworthy. We need an investigation that is thorough, that's independent, to come to the truth. We need to know the truth. And we expect from the Greek authorities now to, A, look after the survivors, make sure that families and the members have access and identify the loved ones, and, again, truth and justice for, for, for what has happened. I want to turn to Abdelfarid Ahmad, the father of 18-year-old Syrian migrant Mohammed Ahmad, who went missing after that shipwreck off Greece. He said he doesn't know if his son is dead or alive. On Friday night, we lost contact with my son, and until now, we don't know anything about his whereabouts. The smugglers say they arrived on the other side, and until now, there's been no communication. We don't know anything about him. Drowned, alive, we don't know. If my son had work, he wouldn't have thought about leaving. If he had peace of mind or a good livelihood, he wouldn't have left. So, Garibos, uh, if you could talk more about um, what people know at this time, what they're told, um, and also talk about your own family um, coming from the southern coastal town of Peloponnese. Uh, you've worked in the region as a volunteer. Uh, we just passed World Refugee Day. Yes, it's it's particularly stressful and and, and uh, uh, taxing for for taxing for me to think that this is a region, the Peloponnese, where all my family comes from. It's the same beaches where where me and my family spend our holidays, and it's becoming a, a, a cemetery for for refugees and migrants. Over thirty thousand people that we know, of, and that's possibly the 
tip of the iceberg of uh, Paris and the Mediterranean, again, in secrets that are completely uh, uh, avoidable. Right now, uh, um, people, survivors, have been taken to, to facilities uh, managed by the Greek uh, authorities, and uh, um, we understand that there has been some invest and one investigation opened by the Greek authorities into the events. We don't know the exact scope, but again, I have to repeat, it has to be a thorough and independent investigation to, to what happened. I also have to say that despite the, the, the negative rhetoric and toxic rhetoric, very often by politicians in Greece, in my own country, but also across Europe, the solidarity is strong. I've seen a lot of people aiding, running to, to, to help, providing for these people. They have done it again. They have done it in 2015. I was there when the thousands of hundreds of, uh, of uh, refugees from Syria came. And the, the ordinary people, as call them, they are there to help. And I do think that there is a lot more solidarity left in us, and it's proven every day. And Europe and European leaders must follow that lead must follow the, the legacy of what happened in 2015 and solidarity by those people to show their way and provide, finally, safe and legal uh, routes for these uh, people. Otherwise, all the tears and all the condolences amount to nothing. They're almost hypocritical. And, uh, yeah, I, I hope, I really hope that this is the last uh, secret. I really hope this is the last time we'll be looking for survivors and share testimonies like the ones we heard before because they're completely unavailable. It's, and it's on us. It's on us to fix it. Laurence Bernard, I was wondering if you could talk about, is it pronounced Mare Nostrum? Uh, what this program was started by the Italian government in 2013, over 100,000 people rescued um, that year. What happened to it? Um, and if you could talk more about how to avoid these tragedies. Yes, the operation called Mare Nostrum in Italian meaning RSC was a European operation conducted by the Italian authorities in between 2013 and 2014. In this um, time, in less than a year, this um, European operation was a, um, a military and a humanitarian operation, also dedicated to search and rescue, rescued um, over 150,000 people in less than a year. Um, it shows how possibilities we know how to do, European member states know how to do, and maritime sectors know how to perform a search and rescue. It means putting European ships at sea, having people that are trained and equipped and coordinated co accurately and efficiently to organize searches and then rescue boats in distress. It happened at that time in this operation, but this operation was ended in 2014 to a lack of European solidarity, the Italian authorities asked for European solidarity to ensure that this was financed um, and not only by the Italian uh, um, country and that um, the people that were rescued could be also taken care of by the European uh, uh, Union in, in its uh, entirety. And with this lack of solidarity, the operation, they decided to put an end operation and since then it was not replaced, only replaced by operations that were military and that were border fence operations. European search and rescue operation um, have been put in place since then. This is why as West Mediterranean we created ourselves as citizens um, eight years ago and other organizations, citizen organizations created themselves. It's to fill the gap left in the central Mediterranean. Uh, specifically in this region, in between Libya and Europe, that is completely left alone. It's completely 
empty of European efficient search and rescue assets. Um, and this is why this is hope that I, I, I've been hearing just now. It's, it's, it's a hope we all share, of course. We hope that this will be the end, that it's the last shipwreck uh, at all, and, and last shipwreck of this magnitude. Uh, unfortunately, I, I, I don't have this, I, I don't hope, I lost this hope. I, I can tell you here and now, there will be other shipwrecks. Um, in the days to come, in the weeks to come, in the months to come, and, and, and most likely in the year to come, if nothing is done. There will be other shipwrecks, there will be other tragedies. Um, the only way to stop that, and it's not that complicated, is to, it's to have this European solidarity uh, in, in place, a movement that organizes a European search and rescue operation in the Mediterranean, so that there is, again, real coordination, uh, efficient coordination. When we receive distress alert, it means that uh, maritime uh, uh, rescue centers coordinate, relay the distress alerts, make sure that the ships around in the vicinity are able to assist, provide assistance, and then disembark in a place of safety. You know how to do. Uh, the maritime world knows how to do. What we need is the, the political choices, is the, the, the will to do it. That's the only thing that is lacking. And talking about that will, I want to end with Giorgos Kosmopoulos in Brussels. Do you have a message to the world's media, this, as we call it, titanic disparity, and how they cover the five people um, who died in that submersible? Um, the idea that that should be a model um, blanket coverage um, when people die at sea, uh, using that model for, and multiplying it many, many times over, uh, for the number of migrants who have died at sea, the message you have to media responsibility. I think it's a message for all of us, including media. Everyone who's at risk at sea, no matter where they come from, no matter which language they speak, their income, the, the societies they come from, we have to mobilize all our resources to help them with no reservations, no bad olives, and put human life on the very, very top of our priorities, not only in words, but also with actions. We need solidarity, we need search and rescue, we need safe and legal routes for everyone, and everyone has to be able to look in the eyes of the survivors and see we did what we could do, and this is not going to happen again. But so far, this is not what is happening. We have policies uh, in Europe that lead to these shipwrecks. That they are, uh, these policies have a direct cause uh, uh, and effect with these shipwrecks uh, 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 we are seeing. So yes, we have the resources, we have the capacity, we have the technology, we have advanced. It's time to put human lives on the very top of our, our, our agenda and our efforts, no matter where these people come from. Yorgos Kosmopoulos, I want to thank you for being with us, Senior Migration Campaigner for Amnesty International, speaking to us from Brussels, Belgium, and Laurence Bondard, spokesperson for SOS Méditerranée, speaking to us from Paris. Coming up, we look at the occupied West Bank as tensions soar, with Jewish settlers attacking Palestinian villages and Israel launching drone and helicopter gunship attacks. Stay with us.
This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman as we turn now to the occupied West Bank, where tensions soared this week after Israel launched a massive military raid Monday in the Janine refugee camp, killing seven Palestinians, including a 14-year-old girl and a 14-year-old boy. During the raid, which was met by fierce Palestinian resistance, Israel deployed U.S.-made Apache helicopter gunships for the first time inside the West Bank in nearly 20 years. On Tuesday, two Palestinian gunmen shot dead four Israelis near an illegal settlement in the West Bank. Settlers responded by attacking Palestinian villages, setting fire to homes and vehicles. One school was set on fire. Settlers were caught on video. tearing out pages from multiple copies of the Quran after they raided a mosque in the West Bank village of Ulif. Meanwhile, on Wednesday, Israel carried out its first targeted assassination aerial strike in nearly 20 years. The drone strike killed three Palestinians, including a 15-year-old boy. This all comes as the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu's far-right government, has agreed to accelerate the process for approving new settlements in the West Bank, despite criticism from the United Nations, European Union, and the United States. We're joined now by the Palestinian journalist, Mariam Barghouti. She's a senior Palestine correspondent from Andawai. She usually is based in Ramallah, but is joining us from New York City today. It's great to have you with us, Mariam. If you can talk about the escalating violence right now uh, in the West Bank. Thank you. It's good uh, to be here again, Amy. Thank you for having me. Right now, what we're seeing is an intensification of Israeli settler violence against Palestinians in the collective. So it's, it's not just being intensified at the level of attacks towards Palestinians, but it's increasing in size. And this is reminiscent of what we have seen in 2021, um, when Israeli settlers rampaged through the old city of Jerusalem, as well as uh, cities in heartland Palestine, such as Yaffa, Tel Aviv, Haifa, um, chanting death to Arabs, and and that's what they have been doing now is killing Arabs. We've had almost 700 Palestinians killed since those chants um, began in 2021, and right now what we are seeing is a joining of forces once again between uh, Israeli settlers in uniforms such as the army and and uh, border police, and Israeli settlers in civilian clothing, but also armed, attacking Palestinians under. The, the false manipulated discourse that this is a response um, to, to a Palestinian militant operation. This is not a response to that. This is the status quo. This is the daily norm. Um, we saw it happen in 2015 when an entire Palestinian family in Nablus, near the location where the most recent arson um, attack happened in mass, an entire family was burned in Duma. Um, including an infant just a few months old and his mother and father uh, leaving the the last remaining uh, child in the family who was three at the time orphan. So what we're seeing is an intensification to completely take over Palestine. And it's not just Palestine in, in the sense of the West Bank. This is Gaza. This is heartland Palestine and Jerusalem. And right now you're seeing attacks exactly the same way Israeli forces have attacked Palestinians in, in the West Bank, happening in the occupied Syrian Golan Heights. Um, so, so Israel is moving full force to do exactly what Blazel um, Smotrich, the current finance minister of Israel, called for 
in terms of Hawara and Nablus, and that is wipe it out. What they are doing right now is wiping it out. Um, the U.S. State Department's Office of Palestinian Affairs said it was appalled by the attacks on Palestinians by the Israeli settlers, adding, we call the Israeli authorities to immediately stop the violence, protect U.S. and Palestinian civilians, and prosecute those responsible. There are many also Palestinian Americans who are living there as well, right? Can you talk about the State Department's response? Did that surprise you? It did not surprise me. The U.S. State Department has rarely interfered or intervened um, on behalf of Palestinian American citizens in order to push forward for justice. A, more than a year later, in the assassination of the Palestinian American journalist Shirin Abu Akleh last year, who was also killed by an Israeli um, sniper shot in Jenin, still did not receive accountability. And come the dozens of others that were killed who are American citizens and zero accountability. Anyone that was arrested in the Israeli military, known for torturing um, and mistreating their political detainees, the U.S. did not interfere. I think that the words, the, the, the language that they try to push forward as though they are truthfully and sincerely representing American citizenry, as, as they claim, is false. Um, what we see is, is the U.S. arming Israel continuously and consistently. What we see is the U.S. vetoing any um, uh, potentials or opportunity for actually holding Israel accountable. I have never heard of asking the butcher to be told to give themselves um, judgment and, and accountability. I have never heard of that dynamic except in this. During the raid uh, in Jenin, um, Israel deployed U.S.-made Apache helicopter gunships for the first time inside the West Bank in nearly 20 years, and also carried out its first targeted assassination aerial strike in the West Bank for the first time in 20 years. They have done that in Gaza more recently. Can you talk about the significance of this and what difference it means when uh, groups in the United States, particularly Jewish groups, um, uh, put pressure on the, is, on the U.S. government around the issue of weapons that, the U, that Israel uses coming from the United States? Thank you for asking that. Um, it's, it's, it's really important to recognize that just recently, the current Minister of National Security, Ahmad bin Gvir, um, uh, who, who was actually denied service in the Israeli military because he was considered a, a terrorist um, and, and a threat to national security, is now the Minister of National Security, has called for a renewed uh, military operation called Defensive Shield. Now, Defensive Shield was a military operation in the early 2000s, between 2002-2003, that took place mostly between Jenin, Nablus, Beit Lahem, and Ramallah in the West Bank. And, and, and they blew up homes wall to wall. That is how they moved through cities. Um, and it was considered the, to be one of the most destructive and tragic uh, military operations to have hit Palestinians in the West Bank. And, and Israel's being, um, it, it was investigated and it has shown the evidence that Israel has committed crimes against humanity and war crimes during these operations. A few months ago, Itmar ben called for Operation Defensive Shield 2.0, basically. Um, so, so that's the significance of using that drone for the first time in 20 years. 
because the last time it was used was 2006, where they targeted the young fighters at the time. And now those born in 2000, 2002, 3, 4, 5, at the peak of Operation Defensive Shield, have grown up and they have seen no change and they try to confront back. And now Benny B is asking to kill those. The children that grew up under nothing but war, who are mostly refugees on World Refugee Day, almost 80% of those killed in the last two years were refugees. They are the refugee camps. Israeli settlers rampaged through Palestinian towns in the West Bank Wednesday, killing at least one person, critically injuring another, torching buildings and cars. This is a resident of the town of Termasaya. Dozens of settlers came here, around 200, 250 settlers. They tried to enter the courtyard. They set the cars on fire. They started shooting towards the house, using live bullets and stones, and they damaged the balconies. There were almost 14 family members at home, including women and children. But thank God there were no injuries. They tried to open the doors, but they were closed. Mariam, if you can talk more about... Um, what the Israeli government, how the Israeli government responds to Israeli settlers rampaging. So the Israeli government arms and provides protection to Israeli settlers rampaging. Um, they send in military forces with the settlers in civilian clothing who are armed um, as well in order to facilitate ease of movement across Palestinian towns and villages. What happened in Tormasaya was preceded in a similar occur occurrence just a few months ago, and it was preceded by a, a mass um, arson attack in Hawara near Nagas also a few months ago. So this is not an anomaly. It's not the exception. It's the norm. And, and this is why it is important for, for especially Jewish voices in the U.S. to continue tackling um, this issue where their, their name... Um, and their beliefs is being used to perpetuate crimes against humanity and to also benefit the weapons trade industry. It's not just the U.S. providing weapons to Israel. It is the U.S. and Israel um, tag-teaming to test those weapons on Palestinians. They have turned the Palestinian demographic into lab rats. I want to end with uh, Mohammed Al-Tamimi, the two-year-old Palestinian child who was recently shot dead by Israeli soldiers. Um, you have written about this and the personal effect it has on you covering this kind of brutality. Tell us about him. Um, Mohammed Al-Tamimi was a two-year-old boy who was killed as Israeli soldiers chased um, other Palestinian youth firing bullets uh, at the car near the village of Nabi Saleh in Ramallah. Muhammad was next to his father when the shooting happened. And as we know, as I have seen from testimonies and documentation, Israel does not discriminate indeed between child or adult, um, civilian or non-civilian combatants or non-combatants. The father was injured. Muhammad, who is two, was killed. Um, and, and you need to understand that his mother is, is, is this young woman who I've known when she was a child um, who has helped protect adults from Israeli arrests, who grew up in Nabi Saleh watching one death after the other. This is a small village and could not protect her two-year-old son.
I don't know what that does to a mother. I don't know what that does to a young mother. And I don't know what that does to a mother living under consistent trauma. That's what happened um, with Muhammad Tamimi, who is two. And that's what happens to dozens of Palestinian families. Um, and it's not, it's not to discourage us, but it is to empower us and, and make us say, no, yeah, we refuse this dynamic in reality. Well, not at our tax dollars. Marion Barguti, I want to thank you for being with us. Uh, senior Palestine correspondent for Mondo Weiss, based in Ramallah, speaking to us, though, today from New York City. You mentioned the idea that Palestine is a lab. Coming up, we speak with the author Anthony Lowenstein about his new book, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World, back in 30 seconds. <laughs> This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. That's the title of a new book by the Australian journalist Anthony Lowenstein, who examines how Israel's military-industrial complex has used the occupied Palestinian territories for decades, he says, as a testing ground for weaponry and surveillance technology that they then explore around the world. Anthony Lowenstein is the author of a number of books, including Disaster Capitalism and My Israel Question. He was based in East Jerusalem between 2016 and 2020. His most recent article for the Sydney Morning Herald is Being Jewish and Critical of Israel Can Make You an Outcast, I Should Know. Anthony is joining us from Sydney, Australia. We welcome you to Democracy Now!, Anthony. Your book has just come out. Uh, what do you mean by the term the Palestine Laboratory? Thanks so much for having me on, Amy. And what I mean by that is that the occupation of Palestine by Israel is now the longest occupation in modern times, 56 years and counting. There's obviously been an occupation of sorts since 1948, but particularly since 1967, and during those years, what Israel has done very successfully from its perspective is find various tools and technologies to maintain and control Palestinians. And what they've done during that time, what Israel's done, is increasingly export those tools and technologies, but also those methods, those so-called counterinsurgency methods. So what I look at in the book, both being on the ground in Palestine for many years and also through declassified documents and various interviews across the world, is that you find in over 130 countries across the globe in the last decades, Israel has sold forms of anything from spyware, so-called smart walls, facial recognition tools, a range of tools of occupation and repression that have initially been tested in Palestine on Palestinians. So, in other words, what I'm saying is that the occupation of Palestine is not staying there. It's not a conflict that remains geographically based just in Palestine. It's become so-called global Palestine. How would you describe politicide? 
that term you used? Politicide, I think, was a term that was coined by Burrell Kimmeling, who is now uh, the late amazing academic. And he was talking really about the concept of a desire within many in the Israeli elite to find ways to destroy Palestinians, that not, not necessarily just through killing them, but also through extinguishing their political identity, their political self-determination. And when looking at it from the outside, one could argue that in some ways Palestinian resistance lives on. Your last segment talked about that very strongly. Palestinians mostly have not left Palestine. They remain there. But certainly from the current Israeli government, and I would argue for decades, there has been a sense that there's a way to crush Palestinian aspirations, their views, their political reality, their future, their horizon. And by doing so, Israel has increasingly marketed that global audience, including in its whole identity as an ethno-nationalist state. It's arguably the most successful ethno-nationalist state in the world, a Jewish supremacist state. And growing numbers of nations around the world, from India and others, look to Israel with admiration and inspiration. We just covered uh, Modi and the lavish reception he got by the president of the United States, mm. Biden, with the state dinner last night, the joint session of Congress. Talk about a little more about how India looks to Israel. Look, what India is doing under Modi, of course, is not solely because of Israel, but traditionally Israel and India were not particularly good friends. But in the last 10 years or so since Modi took power in 2014, there's been a real ideological alignment. But the relationship is really twofold. One, it's a defence relationship. So India buys huge amounts of technology, defence equipment, spyware. I interview a number of people in my book, um, individuals in India, um, lawyers, others, who are spied on by Israeli spyware, particularly Pegasus, by NSO Group. But also there's an ideological alignment, a belief that many Indian officials in the Hindu fundamentalist government there are openly talking about admiration for what Israel is doing in the West Bank and wanting to do something similar in Kashmir. And what I mean by that is they say that reasons. One, because Israel gets away with it, no one's stopping it. There's a complete state of impunity that Israel has globally, really. But secondly, this idea of bringing in, according to India's view, um, huge numbers of Hindus to Muslim-majority Kashmir to settle that territory, to build so-called settlements akin to what Israel's doing in the West Bank. And I think there's a, a really disturbing ideological alignment. I would actually make the comparison between Israel and India today to Israel and apartheid South Africa back in the day. Nations that were very, very close ideologically and got inspiration from each other in the belief that in Israel's case, of course, being a Jewish supremacist state and India's case being increasingly a Hindu fundamentalist state. And that to me is something that should concern people, including the US president. So, Anthony, you talk about a Jewish supremacist state. I'm wondering if you could talk about your own background, something that you take on in this last piece you wrote. Um, being Jewish and critical of Israel can make you an outcast, I should know. And talk about your family, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, those who died in Auschwitz, those who didn't survive the Holocaust. Most of my family, sadly, Amy, like most Jews who lived in Europe, perished in the Holocaust, including Auschwitz. And the ones who got out and escaped Europe, particularly in 1939, just before the war started, escaped to wherever they were given a visa, Australia, Canada, the US, elsewhere. And the ones who came to Australia, when I was growing up, I was born in the mid-70s in Melbourne. 
uh, Israel was not the centre of their lives, but Israel was seen as a safe haven. For those who don't know, as a Jew, I can go to Israel tomorrow, and within a few months, I can almost certainly be a Jewish citizen if I can prove that I'm Jewish. And I think for many Jews, including my family, there was a real reluctance and, in fact, a hostility to any kind of Palestinian reality, Palestinian story, even to meet Palestinians. I mean, as a young Jew, I never met Palestinians. And I think there is a change going on. But certainly when I started writing about this issue around 20 years ago, I wrote a book in 2006 called My Israel Question, where there were attempts by the Israel lobby in Australia to censor the book. There was attempts to pulp the book. There was condemnations of me in Parliament. I mean, it was ridiculous. The book became a bestseller thanks to all that ridiculous controversy. But over that time, my parents, um, both of whom lost most of their Jewish friends, so it was the sins of the sun. I was being critical of Israel. I was trying to humanise Palestinians. And I'm not the only Jew, of course, who was saying this, and I'm really encouraged in the last years. In Australia, the US and other Western countries are growing almost like a Jewish insurgency against particularly an older generation of Jews who doesn't want to humanise Palestinians and somehow believes that Jewish identity should be tied to Jewish supremacy. And so for me personally, I don't claim to be a victim. That story that you referenced at the beginning sort of gives a bit of a potted history of my life, but also explains that one does pay a price for it. Um, one does pay a price as a Jewish person. I'm a secular anti-Zionist Jew today. I feel often that there is a real moral collapse, much of the Jewish diaspora in the last decades. It is changing, but not nearly fast enough. Denise, um, we were talking about the horrific shipwreck last week of migrants, maybe up to 700 dead. Um, can you talk about Israeli technology used by the European Union to surveil and target asylum seekers? This really shocked me, you know, years ago when I started doing some work on this issue. The short version is that the European Union in the last years after 2015, when they were, in their view, overwhelmed by particularly Muslim refugees from Syria, Afghanistan and elsewhere, didn't want to ever repeat that. And they put in place almost a fortress-type Europe, which has occurred in the last years, which is a range of tools and technologies to keep people out. Uh, mostly Muslim and brown and black bodies, of course. And part of that arsenal is using Israeli drones. They're unarmed, but they are flying over the Mediterranean 24-7 and they're used mostly by Frontex, which is the EU's sort of border security arm. And they're the eyes in the sky, essentially. So they are sending back all these images 24-7 to Warsaw, which is where Frontex is based. And the EU has made a decision, of course they don't admit this, but this is the reality, of letting people drown. This is the new policy. There are very, very few rescue boats. The EU barely rescues anyone. There are some NGOs that are trying to do so, and I deeply admire what they're doing. So the Israeli drone becomes a key arsenal and part of this infrastructure of essentially allowing people to drown. And to me, it really goes to the heart of why... Israeli drones are used by the EU because they were battle-tested in Palestine over Gaza in a number of years, in the last 15 years. And you see this um, almost um, Israeli border industrial complex exported across the US-Mexico border, for example. There are massive amounts of Israeli surveillance towers made by Elbert, which is Israel's leading defence company, uh, dotted across the border. 
the key part of the U.S. arsenal across this border with Mexico. And why was that company chosen by the U.S.? Because, of course, it was tested first in Palestine. So to me, the real concern in the 21st century is as the climate crisis worsens, as resource wars are worsening, as refugee numbers have never been high since World War II, many Western nations are sadly making a choice to not welcome people in as we saw with the recent awful shipwreck or um, disaster in the Mediterranean. But in fact, to build higher walls and more surveillance. And Israeli surveillance and technology and repression is part of that arsenal that many nations are now abiding because it's been used, in their view, successfully on Palestinians in Palestine. You have evidence of um, the United States in uh, particularly controversial situations um, working with Israel to perhaps have, for example, in Guatemala, uh, Israel uh, work there uh, so that the United States won't get um, uh, won't be held responsible. Absolutely. One of the things I document in the book really clearly is that over the last 50 years, a lot of nations that the U.S. was close to, Israel almost became an American wingman, often supporting, arming, training nations the U.S. even couldn't do officially because of some issue maybe in Congress. And that did include nations like Guatemala, including at a point where they were committing genocide against their indigenous populations. And one of the reasons that many of those nations, Guatemala, Honduras, Chile, under and of other nations in Latin and South America, although of course it went far further, including in Africa and Asia, was that they, these nations were really attracted by the idea of learning the so-called skills that Israel was gaining through its occupation after 1967. How is it managing the Palestinian population? How is it repressing them, essentially? And there's huge amounts of evidence through declassified documents and interviews, much of which is in the book, which really goes to the heart of showing that the U.S. and Israel became almost like um, uh, invaluable partners during that period to the point where today, look, the, America remains the world's biggest arms dealer. 40% of the world's arms is sold by the U.S. Israel's now 10th. And just last week, in fact, Israel released its 2022 arms figures, 12.5 billion U.S., the biggest amount ever, and 25% of that, was going to Arab autocracies after the so-called Abraham Accords, yeah. the Trump deal from a few years ago. So we're talking about Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Morocco and others. So what are they selling? They're selling repressive technology, spyware, um, intelligence gathering, a range of other tools to prop up US and Israeli-backed dictatorships in the Middle East. So this is what the Israeli arms industry is about. Like This, to me, is a... Mm -hmm some moral failing, but a really dark stain on Jewish legacy 75 years after the Holocaust. Like, this is what we've become, we meaning the Jewish population of the world. The legacy seems to be backing and supporting and arming the worst regimes in the world. Let me ask you about something you mentioned earlier, and that's NSO's Pegasus. Explain further how it's used uh, and how it is used to infect the phones, for example, of journalists, some, um, uh, for example, who are in jail, like in Morocco, as you talk about the Abraham Accords, uh, Omar Adi, who we interviewed before he was imprisoned and has been now for several years. Pegasus got a lot of attention in the last years, as viewers will know, as probably the most um, 
known or infamous Israeli spyware. Essentially, it's a tool that allows any um, government or military intelligence or police department to spy on someone's phone, iPhone or Android, and get all the information from that phone. And it's popped up in dozens and dozens of countries around the world. And I spend a lot of time in the book interviewing some of the victims of that um, surveillance in Togo, for example, in Mexico, in India. And Mexico, interestingly enough, is the biggest user of Pegasus by far. There is an absolute addiction in Mexico, both under right-wing governments and the current normally left-wing government. Governments don't want to give this tool up. It's not just Pegasus. Of course, there are many other Israeli companies doing the same thing. But one of the things that I explore in the book is that so much of the media in the last years around Pegasus missed the key point. It was almost framed as a rogue Israeli company doing terrible things around the world. But in fact, companies like Pegasus actually are only private in name. They are basically arms of the state. Netanyahu and Mossad, who have been going to various countries in the last 10 years, and I document this in the book, and this has also been shown by Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper, often go to nations like Saudi Arabia, Rwanda and others, and they hold Pegasus and other tools as a diplomatic carrot. If you support us in the UN or elsewhere, we will sell you the most powerful spyware in the world. And it works because it's been sold in UAE and Saudi and Rwanda and many other repressive states. Unless there is a complete ban or massive regulation, which currently does not exist at all, these technologies will continue. And even if NSO Group disappears tomorrow, it's currently in financial crisis. Many other companies do exactly the same thing, and which is why Israel is now one of the leading spyware exporters in the world. Well, Anthony Lowenstein, I want to thank you so much for being with us, author of the new book, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. If you want to see our interview with the now imprisoned Moroccan journalist Omar Adi, as well as our other work um, talking to the University of Toronto Lab and others about Pegasus, uh, you can go to democracynow.org. Democracy Now! produced with Mike Burke, Renee Feldstein, Augusta, Messiah Rhodes. Um, uh, as well, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warren, Aftarina, Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari, Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Hani Massoud, Sanji Lopez, our Executive Director, Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Stalley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grand, Dennis Moynihan, David Crude. I'm Amy Goodman. This is Democracy Now! Okay, everybody. Blaze the violet fire on all of that. Galactic intervention now. Okay, Rama, tell us what you're going to play here. Well, this is Aurora Ray. Uh, another one. I think there's four altogether, isn't Three. There? Oh, okay. This is um, part of a six-part series about learning how to work with the ascension frequencies and she's giving techniques training how to work with the energies okay how many minutes is this this first one i think it's about 10 minutes okay let's get that one going Ascension is all about raising your frequency and shifting your consciousness into a new, higher reality. You have one physical body, three mental bodies, and six 
energetic bodies. Not all of your 10 sacred bodies are going to 5D simultaneously. You can shift one after the other to manifest more abundance and more happiness and more prosperity, more health and better relationships until the physical process is complete. The ancient methods of yoga, meditation, breathwork, sound healing and mantras are crucial for ascension and changing your life. Ultimately, with these methods, you're raising your frequency, building a radiant energy body and creating a strong aura that is powerful enough to attract and manifest all your wishes. But did you know that most people don't have a proper spiritual practice of meditation, breathwork, mantra, sound healing, and yoga every day? Because most techniques are boring, difficult, and even ineffective. And just imagine how much time you'd need each day to do all these practices effectively. Now, at the beginning of your spiritual journey, you have this awakening moment that inspires and motivates you, which gives you more discipline to do some of the harder work. So if someone were to tell you, shut up, sit down and meditate for two hours, two times daily, you're highly motivated and inspired and you do sit down and actually meditate for two hours twice a day. And yes, crazy things can happen if you meditate for two hours daily, two times a day. But how long can you do that? How sustainable is that? Because at some point comes a different phase in life. You may fall in love or get a new job or you find new friends. Now you want to hang out with them all the time. And the ego will find a way to avoid meditating in silence for two hours, only one time a day, let alone two times a day. And another thing is sitting in a cross-legged meditation pose for two hours. Meditation over 20 to 30 minutes is hard on the body for most. Your legs will go numb or your back might start to hurt. Something will hurt or go numb. We've entered the age of Aquarius and the Aquarian way of teaching is all about generating energy and having an experience as opposed to the Piscean age ways of teaching, which were all about hard effort, studies and memorizing stuff. If you want to ascend into a new reality without tedious, difficult, and simply not effective enough methods, and if you want to avoid dealing with a contradictive flood of information that now requires skills and discernment, you need to learn my Kundalini activation technique. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Aurora Ray, ambassador of the Galactic Federation. I'm a quantum healing hypnosis technique practitioner better known as QHHT. I also guide nine-dimensional breath journeys and I am a teacher of applied yogic science and technology. I have helped thousands of people who were tired of gathering useless information without knowing how to generate and manipulate energy. My students are a mix of people who have been following the spiritual community for a long time and people who have just awakened to their spirituality. But both groups have this in common. Things have not drastically changed in their lives before meeting me. They didn't have effective tools that are also fun enough to keep them engaged. Or the methods simply lack the energy to give them a powerful experience. And most importantly, the techniques don't work because they are incomplete. 
you need to involve many different things to get full activation. Did you know that most global meditation efforts are not even meditations at all? When someone says, imagine this, imagine that, now do this, do that. This is a simple visualization that is filling your mind instead of emptying your mind, which is the actual purpose of meditation. I say this, what if we can generate energy and have a powerful experience in all of our 10 sacred bodies simultaneously through a practice that combines yoga, meditation, mantra, sound healing, and breath work into an experience that is out of this world, magical and amazing. What if I can show you how you can create an energy field directed at prosperity, directed at relationship, directed at manifestation or healing? And what if this practice can repair and reprogram your DNA in as little as 11 minutes or just three or even only one minute per day if that's all you got? And no, you don't have to be physically fit, but you will be. There are practices that will give you more in just 11 minutes than a full-on two-hour pro-league dry meditation can give you. Once you meditate with me for one minute, you will know why I call other meditations tedious and some even completely ineffective, as long as you don't sit there for at least two hours. And what if this ancient yogic science and technology is 100% in alignment with my galactic teachings and 100% confirmed by the teachings of my teacher, Dolores Cannon? And what if I tell you that this technique is just out of this world, magical, powerful, and ecstatically joyful? We're also going to utilize the power of sound to enhance our technique. This universe was created by a big bang. That was the primordial sound out of which creation was born. And we're not utilizing just any sound. We're using fantastic two-time Grammy award-winning spiritual music that was produced specifically for this technique that I teach. That alone will raise your frequency and change your electromagnetic field instantly. Another thing is that often when you're on the spiritual journey, you feel lost and feel like you can't relate to the world around you. And you find yourself dealing with difficult relationships and are probably unhappy with your job. But here's the thing. Love, health and wealth are frequencies that you can attract and manifest if you know how to reprogram your electromagnetic field. Here are the top three reasons why you need my Kundalini activation technique. Number one, you can stop searching for any help or practice after your first class with me. You will know that you have found the one thing you love doing and have finally found what you were searching for. Number two, it is the fastest technique on the planet to shift all your 10 sacred bodies into a higher frequency and activate the Kundalini energy which will upgrade your dormant DNA and facilitate the physical ascension process. Number three, it is the most efficient technique to create a radiant energy body and aura to attract all your desires and manifest your wishes. In short, the Kundalini activation technique generates energy, organizes it within your chakras, awakens your dormant DNA and delivers you to a higher consciousness. Through my classes, you're going to find one or more techniques that will speak to your soul. 
these will be your favorites. And you might not even use them daily, but you will know that there is a one, three or 11 minute practice that will make you feel fantastic while helping you achieve your goals. I'm saying that you will have a new, beautiful, fun hobby that you love that will also be your key to higher frequencies and manifestation. Imagine you apply for a job and know how to create a radiant energy body and a strong aura in just a few minutes to raise your frequency toward your desired outcome. Guess who gets the job? The one with the most radiant energy body. And the next video, I'll show you exactly how to start implementing my Kundalini activation technique. And I'll walk you through a simple technique that you can use to get results fast. So make sure you stay on the lookout and don't miss the next video. I've also got some exciting news for those who want the world to finally see you, acknowledge you, and want the big opportunities to come to you. In a few days, I'm going to launch my Ascension Activation Training. And I'm going to take a handful of new students and teach them exactly how to generate an energy body through which all things are created and attracted and manifested. Now, as much as I'd like to help everyone with the Kundalini Activation Technique, I find that my students get the best results when I work in a small group setting. That way, everyone can get the help and support that they really need. So this is going to be a genuinely rare opportunity to participate in my live classes and spots are granted on a first come, first serve basis. So if that's something you are interested in, make sure you click on the link under this video and put your name on the early bird waitlist. Everyone on this waitlist will get access to the registration link the night before the program launches to the public. What's that one about? Two-minute exercise. How long is it? Two minutes. Oh. Okay. I think. I think not. I think it's... Must learn how to generate energy. Activate your kundalini and let the energy rise up through your chakra system, interlocking and activating your chakras. The kundalini will recalibrate your scattered helixes of DNA and deliver you to higher consciousness until you are in full memory of your divine heritage. Everything is energy. You must learn how to generate and manipulate it. You must learn to become multidimensional beings. But no pressure, right? But you do have the burning desire for the world to see you and acknowledge you. You want big opportunities and love, money, well-being to flow freely towards you. And you want to practice the perfect technology, but you don't know which one that is and feel overwhelmed. In this video, I'll show you in the next five minutes that practicing my Kundalini activation technique is not difficult at all. Most people think ascension and kundalini activation are hard. And when they hear the truth that there isn't a way around practicing breathwork, meditation, yoga, mantras, and sound healing on a daily basis, 
they give it up all in anger right there. Seriously, how many hours would you need to do one practice after the other every single day? We don't have that much time. We have families, businesses, jobs. We have many things to do all the time. In the last video, I showed you why the old Piscean age structure of teaching information that lacks energy and experience doesn't work anymore. It can't teach you how to bring your dreams to life, to make the world see you and your uniqueness. And I introduced you to the Kundalini activation technique and explained why this works better than anything else on the planet. So in case you haven't watched my last video, please go back and watch that right now. I covered a lot of important information and if you're serious about 5D Ascension, you don't want to miss it. So I'm going to teach you a two minute Kundalini activation technique in which we combine breathwork, meditation, yoga, mantra, and sound healing together to balance the left and right hemispheres of the brain. So you can equally dream and envision your desires as well as have the capacity to manifest that abundance. This powerful technique will strengthen, purify, and enhance your aura, strengthening the nervous system repair any imbalances and cleanse the blood and lungs in just two minutes of practice. Generating and manipulating energy is easy if you have the right tool. This is learning based on experience and the experience will teach you. This is the Aquarian way of teaching. In the Piscean age, we learned through studying and consuming information. In the age of Aquarius, we experience the energy and the energy will teach us. Sit in a cross-legged easy pose position on the ground. Press the fingertips on the pads of each finger, extending the thumbs. Now stretch your arms upwards in 60 degrees over your head. We will be doing a short breath exercise through the nose, even and steady inhale and exhale. You breathe through the navel point. When you inhale, the navel comes out. When you exhale, the navel goes in. The eyes are closed and focused on the third eye. represents your ego. Stretch it away from the hand to eradicate your ego. Powerful inhale and exhale through the nose. You are generating energy in the body now. Feel the heat you are creating. is your chance to reprogram the subconscious mind. You are in control. Stretch your arms up. Correct the posture. 
Strong inhale and exhale. Even inhale and exhale through the nose. This is the breath of fire. Now take a deep breath in, hold the posture, hold the breath. Bring your hands together over your head, thumbs touching. Now exhale and stretch the fingers upwards. Now slowly raise your hands down through the sides, projecting the energy that you just created into your aura. Fingertips touch the ground. Rest your palms on your knees and keep your eyes closed for a moment longer. Feel the vibration of the exercise pulsate throughout your body. Feel the shift in your frequency. Take another deep breath in, hold, eyes focus on the third eye, hold the breath. And release. You can practice this technique anytime between one to three minutes. And I want you to do it every day. Even if it's just for one minute, and even if you do it just for a few days, but you'll see some shifts in your life during those days. And my upcoming Ascension Activation training, I'll be sharing a lot more quick, easy, and super fun techniques with you for a strong aura, a radiant energy body, a clear mind, a powerful intuition, and above all, higher consciousness and the capacity to manifest all your wishes. So make sure you stay tuned because in a few days I'll release more information about it and I'll show you exactly what's included. In my next video, I'll show you the five-minute prayer meditation that can magically fulfill long overdue wishes. This is literally the number one secret that I've been using for years and I've barely ever talked about it publicly. So stay tuned because what I'm about to share with you in the next video is going to change your life forever. So my beautiful people, I hope you enjoyed this video. Thanks so much for watching. And I'm seriously super excited to share with you my favorite magical, joyful practice in the next video. We're going to save that one for the end and we're going to play our friend Alan G. Alan W. Green, our British friend. And this is called The Play Within the Play. And I think TJ's here to hear this. So here, here's what it says How are numbers, letters, and symbols? used as encrypted clues of a royal scandal within Shakespeare's works. In this final act of the play, within the play, 
Join author Alan W. Green in this concluding episode as he exposes the most undeniable ciphers and irrefutable evidence linking figures, places, and theologies across time through the mysterious band. Green reveals the codes and clues linking Shakespeare with secret societies who have shaped the world from the shadows over time. So this is 31 minutes, and we're going to start now. faking it like Hammer, the true author who has been unerringly guiding us from the very beginning to the very end from the Aleph to the Tav from the Triple Tau to the Enochian Tables from the 426 Sonnet to the 624 from the Eye of Horus to Set to St. George slaying the dragon of Maya it's all showing us that Veer is within the Devir Hebrew for the Holy of Holies, the sacred word that was in the beginning, is now, and evermore will be hiding behind the mask of Shakespeare, the mask of every man, the countless masks we all wear until we wake up from our collective midsummer night's dream. This whole episode will be a class in how to decrypt a suspected code using everything we've learned so far and tying together all the hints we've explored that have led us inevitably to the big question, to be or not to be a king. I just can't wait to show you because if Shakespeare is going to leave one final coup de grace hidden for us, proving what he wants us to know, it's got to be in Hamlet most autobiographical play of all and what more significant place than in his dying words let's go to the holy of holies and reveal shakespeare's biggest secret of all the first clue we have that there's even a code involved here is that there are three wrong page numbers surrounding the play starting at page 98 the end of Timon of Athens. The next two are unnumbered, but should be 99 and 100, but 101 suddenly jumps to 109. It carries on from there until the end of Macbeth, so that Hamlet starts at page 152. As we'll see, that's important. The numbering continues fine, but suddenly jumps by 100. And then it carries on again until we reach the end of Hamlet, where it goes backwards to another page 280. All that apparently so as to surround Hamlet's dying speech 
with two page 280s. Scratch those two zeros. They literally are nothings called nulls in cryptography. Exactly half of Oxford's O O O O cipher. Look at the speech. Oh, I die, Horatio. Zero, one. An immediate clue. The letters M O A I, the Twelfth Night code that instructs us to revolve into the Freemasons' sacred I A O M password. He's telling us to look for mirror imagery, and there it is. At the end of the first line, I O. That's the I know no I from Richard II, page forty, where he's being forced to surrender his crown. And number ten, remember, is one zero, Robert Cecil's code number. By reversing it, Shakespeare's saying, if you're going to negate me, force me to give up my crown, I'm going to negate you. One zero becomes zero. One. At the end of the speech, the rest is silence, followed by that terrible line, "Oh, oh, oh, oh!" But of course, that's Oxford's code number forty four O's. Again, page forty, second line. Therefore, no, no, for I resign to thee by inverting his own four zero to zero four. Oxford is saying King Richard's story is his own story. Dies again, a sly O O D clue. Yes, we'll see. Die, die. This is a standoff between Oxford and Cecil. History will know the truth of what happened because these codes will last forever in my works. He's saying Cecil is the real political power behind King James and Hamlet, Oxford. Is setting the record straight in the play, and the play within the play. The wrong man is on the throne. As always, we look at the centre for the truth. Lights is the centre word of the speech. There are twenty-eight words before it, and twenty-eight words after it. The wrong page numbers minus those nulls of Oxford's cipher. But why twenty-eight? The twenty-eighth degree. Of Scottish Rite Freemasonry is called the Night of the Sun, and even embeds the Night of the Sun number into the sonnet's dedication. Twenty-eight words followed by twenty-eight dots, and the TT key that unlocks the Enochian tables at the bottom. Now, the centre phrase: "The election lights on Fortinbras." Almost all versions of this. Four-hour play are drastically cut, so most people are unfamiliar with the character who has the final word, Fortinbras. We hardly ever see him, but both he and Hamlet have father kings of the same name. Both are intent on revenging the deaths of their fathers, but Fortinbras wins his kingdom as Hamlet loses his. They are oppositional mirrors of each other, and for good reason. The name Fortinbras is completely fictional. It's created solely to unlock the true Hamlet Oxford identity. A firstborn. Furthermore, the election lights on Fortinbras reveals 
a firstborn son of light. <gasps> and then, what's this? It's blurry, but checking several folios at higher resolution shows it's in all of them. It looks like a Hebrew vav, but it's definitely another of those specially created characters. Finally, Dee's favorite device, the colon. He can use it as just one character, or if needed, as nulls, two dots to shift letters in a grid. First, we examine the position of this character to see if it's significant mathematically. There are 94 characters before it, and it's the 152nd character from the end. 94 over 152 gives us 0.618, the golden ratio. One of the most important constants that D uses in countless codes. There's no way this VAB is there by accident. So we dig and we realize Oh, 152 is the page Hamlet starts at, but only because of that wrong page number juggling at the start. Plus, it's the cutoff point of the sonnet's pyramid structure, marking the Great Pyramid platform under the missing pyramidion. It's time to put this into a grid. Counting the colon as either one or two nulls, both totals produce unusable grids. But counting the colon as two characters and counting this valve gives us 247 characters and we're in business. So the valve is definitely an intentional part of the code. And since all these codes must be revolved, right? We flip it and it becomes a capital L. The center is as perfect as could be. I. The self, unity consciousness. A line going straight up the center reveals via, truth. A line going down the center reveals de via. And the signature of the rosy cross with the double T going through it. The key at the bottom of the sonnet's dedication. Moving up, we find C, the Roman numeral for 100. Coupled with the center square, it gives us the Roman numeral one, confirming the very center pages of the folio, 100 and 101, where we will find truth is hid. Fear. And ore, ore becomes O-E-O-R-E. -E. Again, to be or not to be the king. Clearly, the I in the center is not part of a word. It's sacred, the self. It should remain untouched by everything around it. Here's Fortin Brass, a firstborn. And in the very center, that phrase lights on Fortin Brass. Note that for the phrase to be central, we can't use the O-N at the end of the line or the center I. But there's another I and O-N preceding the phrase. Attention to detail. It's impeccable. Light, sun, still centered but higher up, of. Members of these secret societies ascend through successive levels of initiations, which they represent visually. It 
looks like he's building those ascending levels, doesn't it? And then all of a sudden you see it. A pyramidian. Highlight the letters we haven't used yet. And this punctuation helps the solution make grammatical sense because here's an I we can use, leaving the center one untouched. I, comma, Devere, comma, the TH stands out. I am, but I am. And suddenly, Elizabeth makes her entrance. The TH indicating the divine right of kings. It's no longer all about Devere. Now we see he couldn't have achieved this without the use of that inverted verb. It, it had to be a character that wouldn't ruin a sentence, but could be a letter when needed. Still, the name is only Elizabeth. We need an A, and here it is, the A of A firstborn. If we reassign it to make Elizabeth perfect, it turns A firstborn, suggesting there are many, into just firstborn, meaning there's only one. We're left with two statements. I am Elizabeth and I, Devere. Both are Rosicrucians, obviously, but who is this firstborn son of light? The answer must be in what sits atop the 152nd level of the Pyramid of Sonnets, the missing Pyramidian with its all-seeing eye. So what is it saying? We need to look at the night of the tree of the sun. I want you to picture it. The contestants are all preparing before dawn, determined to defeat Oxford, who is not popular at court, because he's a know-it-all, who unfortunately does know it all. As the sun rises, they look eastward along the 650-foot tilt yard and see a huge bay tree, shimmering, pure gold. Oxford makes his entrance, clad in gold armor, seated on a gold caparisoned horse in front of a huge tree with every leaf, every branch, the whole trunk covered in pure gold leaf. His servants had decorated it overnight so that Oxford could emerge in the morning shining like the sun. He then has his page deliver an oration to Queen Elizabeth called the Knight of the Tree of the Sun, expressing his undying devotion to her as her loyal knight. He says he would willingly die a thousand deaths to defend her crown. It's an unparalleled promise of faithfulness delivered before the entire court and about 12,000 spectators in the cheap seats all along the tilt yard. His words are so compelling. The dramatic vision he's materialized so powerful. It's Shakespeare in the park, centuries before that was a thing. A foretaste of what will soon make Elizabeth's court and the London playhouses the envy of Europe. His oratory starts by saying, the world has countless varieties of trees. All have their particular uses and their imperfections too, but he, a wandering knight in search of shade, came across, quote, a tree so beautiful, his eyes were dazzled with the brightness. 
For as the clear beams of the sun cause all the stars to lose their light, so the brightness of this golden tree eclipseth all others. The leaves of pure gold, the root so noble as it springeth from two turquoises, both so perfect. He chose turquoise deliberately. Warriors place it on body armor and swords for it was believed to make them invulnerable in battle. But there's an in-joke here because Elizabeth's pet name for Oxford was her Turk. And he's saying he is the turquoise, the very root of this golden tree. He continues, Vesta sitteth in the midst. Vesta is the Roman goddess whose temple was guarded by the Vestal Virgins. Whereat Cupid is ever drawing his bow, but dares not, should being amazed at the princely and perfect majesty. He's saying the queen is this unequaled tree of the sun, and he is the root. This is a scandalous thing to say in public. He's either telling the world he and the queen share the greatest love ever, or it's a declaration of utter selfless service, the chivalry of a courtier knight for his prince. And he means it. Finally, he declares he will prove himself in the contest to only be the knight of the tree of the sun. And whosoever wisheth to prove him wrong, let them come, for he would rather die upon the points of a thousand lances than yield one jot in constant loyalty. Everyone who can hear is stunned into silence. And for those who couldn't hear, the entire speech was quickly printed up for sale. And then the contests began. His adversaries were more eager than ever to crush him for his insufferable bragging. What they could not see, however, was this was not arrogance or even an incomprehensibly extravagant mind game to psych out his opponents. Oxford had simply fixed his heart on unwavering loyalty to queen and country. He had no fear, no doubt of the outcome. He was indeed invulnerable. And 12 contests of strength and valor later, Oxford had won every single one for his queen. So why the metaphor of Elizabeth being the goddess Vesta? In ancient Rome, the Vestal Virgins had to vow 30 years of chastity to become priestesses of Vesta's temple. Their virginity was considered essential to Rome's survival. Vesta's temple was one of Rome's most essential centers of worship. Its altar was the sacred fire and the Vestals were charged with keeping it ever burning. Rome believed their very survival depended on it. Oxford was saying in the most public way possible that he understood England's survival depended just the same on maintaining the myth of Elizabeth's virginity. Whether true or not, and his message was certainly ambiguous, politically, her availability to European suitors was the only thing that had kept the Spanish from invading so far. Certainly, de Vere spent much of his life dedicated to that promise of 
courtier knight loyalty through his timeless works. Let us see how. The Pyramidion at the pinnacle of this structure is represented by the Bath Sonnets, 153 and 154. Both are the same story, but written in different tones. Each references the moon goddess, Diana, nymphs that vowed chaste life to keep, that's the Vestal Virgins. Each also references the sun god, holy fire of love. These are the opposites that must be balanced to achieve the alchemical wedding of heat, cold, light, dark, male, female. It's all there, but in a nuanced way. 153 has the more sexual heat associated with the sun god, Sol. 154 tends toward the chastity of the moon goddess, Luna. The final line, love's fire heats water, water cools not love, is literally the sacred obligation of the Vestal Virgins, keepers of the eternal flame. The four occurrences of the word bath carry the double meaning of the alchemical bath in which the great work of the philosopher's stone is done, but also they are references to the Roman baths, particularly the very popular mineral springs in the city of Bath, Somerset. When the Romans vanquished the Celts, they found them worshipping their goddess of medicine and healing, Sulis. They claimed ownership of the indigenous sacred site, of course, and built an immense temple complex adjoining the baths. On one side of the courtyard is a temple dedicated to Sol, their sun god. On the other side is the temple of Luna, their moon goddess. And in the center is the most important temple of all, dedicated to their newly created hybrid deity, Sulis Minerva. Minerva was Rome's most important goddess, born fully formed from the head of Jupiter, shaking a spear. It's clear his fellow writers and Rosy Cross initiates understood the spear-shaker metaphor Oxford was developing. Witness this book, published in 1612, Minerva Britanna, Britain's Minerva, the cover of which features the hand of a hidden author in the process of writing the letter I from behind a theatrical curtain. Are we starting to see his Minerva persona built into the bath sonnets with Elizabeth as the Vestal Virgin Goddess at the center? Cupid is Eros. Eros is the son of Venus, son. Diana is the Moon, artists were constantly comparing Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen, to Diana. Here's a painting equating her with the goddess herself. This painting portrays a beauty contest between Venus, Minerva and Juno, in which Elizabeth is depicted as the winner. Its Latin inscription translates, The rosy face of Venus was shining bright, but then came Elizabeth and outshone them all. The artist has placed Elizabeth atop three ascending levels, the three initiatory degrees of Freemasonry. Clearly a nod from a fellow Rosy Cross initiate. By depicting Elizabeth up 
above the rosy Venus, the painter is equating her with the mother of Eros, just as Oxford did in his oration at the Tilts. Ben Jonson, a fellow poet, wrote a mask for court in which two cupids, Eros and Anteros, are arguing. Their conflict escalates into a full-blown jousting contest until their differences are reconciled by a god who declares, You are both true cupids and both the sons of Venus, but the firstborn was called Eros. He then explains that Anteros's role is to balance Eros's erotic sexual love with selfless love based on mutual reciprocation. It's clear Johnson was using the tilt metaphor to explain the double meaning behind Oxford's Night of the Tree of the Sun speech. And he put it plainly. Eros is the firstborn of the God's offspring and is therefore the firstborn son of light. But still we have three statements with nothing connecting them. There has to be more. Note how the pyramidion also resembles Cupid's arrow shooting skyward. But what is it pointing to? Of course, the crowns. And the central problem that both unites and divides De Vere and Elizabeth, to be or not to be the king, does the conundrum of Eros and Teros Sexual love versus chivalric love actually give us the solution we're looking for? I believe so. Many scholars have speculated that the Queen and Oxford had an affair from 1572 to 74. And I've already told you about their three private visits with the Archbishop of Canterbury. Obviously, if they were secretly married which the codes in the last episode seemed to say. They understood the political necessity of keeping the arrangement secret. There was no way their love affair could play out in public. And if there was a child coming, it would have to be hidden away into a surrogate family, as happened frequently with Elizabeth's father, King Henry VIII. So is this the solution? First son born of the divine Elizabeth and I, De Vere, the crown's Rosicrucian light. As any parent knows, your child is the light of your life. Describing theirs as the crown's rosy cross light would be perfectly fitting. On the other hand, there's ambiguity in the Bath sonnets as well as in Oxford's oratory that might be explained thus. When Princess Elizabeth was only 14, she lived for a while in the home of the Dowager Queen, Catherine Parr, King Henry VIII's widow, who had recently married Thomas Seymour, the reckless Lord Admiral. The house servants reported incidents of Seymour initiating inappropriate bedroom play with the young princess. A scandal ensued and Seymour was executed for treason, including efforts to manipulate the young princess into marriage by impregnating her. 
as she had become pregnant and that the child was placed into an aristocratic family's home, as once again had been the norm with her father's many bastard children. A simple rearrangement reveals another perfectly credible solution for this code. I, Devere, firstborn son of Elizabeth, I am the crown's Rosicrucian light. In this case, Devere himself would be the Rosicrucian light and hope of the crown, a legitimate successor to continue the Tudor dynasty. I have to say that to find such ambiguity is very unusual. Virtually all the codes I've deciphered have been crystal clear in their meaning. So which do you think is true? Why is he so intent on saying he's the rightful king? Were they secretly married? Was he her firstborn heir? Would he indeed have gone to such lengths to illustrate the eros anteros dichotomy in this masterful cryptographic work if at least one of these solutions were not the truth? To me, it's the attention to detail that's so convincing. Perfection like this simply doesn't happen by accident. And this John Dee's trademark, as he wrote in his Monus Hieroglyphica, in it there be not even one superfluous dot and not one dot wanting. Even the punctuation has to be perfect. I am, comma, Elizabeth, comma, the crowns, apostrophe, Rosicrucian light, period. And of course, for both of them, period. The question to be or not to be the king was, of course, answered definitively by the queen's refusal right up to the moment of her passing to name an heir. But as Shakespeare said in The Merchant of Venice, truth will out. For the answer awaits us right here inside the Holy of Holies, the altar, the Devere. Remember what he said in Sonnet 121, I am that I am, the to be part, the name of God so central to this entire story from the very beginning and to be used only by divine right bestowed on kings. Yet in the next breath, he states the not to be part. By their rank thoughts, my deeds must not be shown. And he is the writer, producer, director, and star of this drama. Parts of it are comedies. Parts are certainly tragedies. But in the end, in the center, is all his story. I expect everyone has their own particular favorite Shakespeare quote. One of mine is, all the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely plays. But in the end, 
He's just saying the choice is always ours to be or not to be who we really are. The I am as I am. That's the question, everyone. I think uh, we lost Rainbird tonight to Dreamland. I think, though, that uh, missed. Uh, let's see. Uh, oh, okay. TJ's going to try one more time. <laughs> to be or not to be, that is the question. To be or not to be the, I am that, I am, to be who we really are. Mm -hmm. Isn't that the word? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so um, wow. <clears throat> we got just, we got the last one from uh, Aurora Ray. Ready, Rama? Oh. No, I was going to do it tomorrow. Oh, you're going to do the last one tomorrow? Yeah. And so you're going to do the real meaning of life. Who Mr. is that? Alan Watts. Mr. Alan Watts. Uh -huh. Well, I was going to see if Rainbird woke up. <laughs> um, I think maybe we have not made... Oh, BBS... Okay, Rainbird, you're on the money. <laughs> okay, this emerald serpent feather talking stick with angels, fairies, feathers, rainbows, crystals, and menahunis and Sasquatch and uh, 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 Saint Germain. It's on this talking stick. Here it comes. Rainbird? Uh, uh, TJ, did you get Rainbird? Oh, I forgot oh, to unmute. I was talking away. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I'm done now. Thank you. <laughs> the, co the cosmic trickster is here, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Your sister always likes to come in. So, much gratitude for, for tonight. Thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoy that Shakespeare at the end, too. But it's all good. I, the meditation was amazing. It was. Lots of good stuff. So, thank you. So much thanks back to you as well, Rainbird. And Rama, what you got for us? Um, Alan Watts. Okay, and is there a title to this Alan Watts soliloquy? Yeah, the Real Meaning of Life. Okay, that sounds great. The yeah. Real Meaning of Life, everyone. Here we go. I'm just getting this song. Uh, I getting a song. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not what I to do. Um, 
Taking a moment of reflection. Uh-huh. Okay. Oh, that one. Okay. All right, let's do this. The real meaning of life. Here we go. Oh, sound. It's coming, everyone. Yeah. Imagine you visited a beautiful beach. Then you returned the next day and there was one less grain of sand on the beach. Would it seem to be a different beach? So too would the universe continue in its way if humanity did not exist to witness it. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. We are more insignificant than we ever could have imagined. You could get rid of us and all the galaxies and everything we see in the universe, it'll be largely the same. So we're insignificant on a scale that Copernicus never would have imagined. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. And in addition, it turns out the future is miserable. That should depress you. But I would argue that, in fact, it should embolden you and, and provide you a, a different kind of consolation. Because if the universe doesn't care about us, and if we're an accident in a remote corner of the universe, in some sense, it makes us more precious. The meaning in our lives is is provided by us. We provide our own meaning. And we should enjoy our brief moment in the sun. We should make the most of our brief moment in the sun because this is all we have. And even if we're so rare that we're the only life forms in the universe, which I doubt, that makes us in some sense, while we're more insignificant, we're more special. Is that it? Yeah. Are you sure? Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. So this is the music, right, Rama? Yeah. Here we go. Everybody's called Song of the Sandman. Thank you. 
film footage for this piece here at the end that we play often. <laughs> you got to catch that. I think they sneak in those commercials in everywhere they can. Yet the film footage is of two real unicorns. I'm not sure where in the world it is. It's just some very uh, cliffs in the background and the stream and this young this young lady is uh, connecting just by putting her hand out and this one unicorn comes up and touched, touches her hand with his nose but it's just gorgeous they're two very large all white unicorns so we'll leave that with your dream time tonight and We'll see you this afternoon, as we say. Inshallah, Sat Nam. Dot Nam T. Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart. No evil, let's live long and prosper. There's so much more to come. Namaste, everyone. Aloha, Nui Loha. Namaste. <laughs>